Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Sutris here. Apologies on uh, how long it took to get this episode out, and uh, a quickie as well, uh, kind of... Uh, a little tribute to the Oscars, although the way things are going, it's coming out after the Oscars have already finished. But uh, let's start with today's uh, episode you're listening to right now. It's a great doubleheader. Ali Masters joins us. Great stuff from Ali Masters in the last couple of years. The Kitchen last year with Ming Doyle, an amazing book. I loved it. It was uh, the uh, wives of a 70s uh, mob family in New York taking over the business. And uh, it is pretty amazing, and I, it really is one of my favorite stories from 2015. He's also writing Snowblind at Boom, and it is uh, halfway done, an excellent crime story about a uh, family in the witness protection uh, program, and uh, it is great and deserves your attention. Ali Masters will be talking about his work, and we also go on uh, talking about a lot of uh, British TV that we both enjoy and other pop culture things in part one of Word Balloon. Part two, I'm talking to Aubrey Sitterson, who uh, is an excellent editor for a long time and is uh, making his way as a writer now. Uh, Aubrey did a lot of editing on uh, Robert Kirkman uh, projects back in the day for Marvel and Image, and uh, now is an independent writer and is working with IDW doing the G.I. Joe vs. Street Fighter crossover. Issue 1 came out last week. It was fantastic. Aubrey is also uh, a man who is uh, quite the podcaster. He does two different podcasts. One podcast is Straight Shoot, the wrestling podcast uh, that he does weekly. And uh, we also talk about his uh, very interesting narrative uh, fantasy story called Scald. And uh, I'm intrigued by Scald, and I think you should be as well. Very interesting ideas uh, from Aubrey Sitterson. We talk about his writing and his podcasting and more in part two of Word Balloon. I hope you enjoy it today, and uh, I'm going to, in fact, let it uh, go right now. Guess what? This is going to be a sponsor-free episode of Word Balloon. Uh, if you would, go to wordballoon.com, and you can check out the sponsors right there up front and uh, take care of them. But uh, without further ado, let me uh, get you to this great conversation first with Ali Masters to start things off on today's Word Balloon. Ali Masters, welcome to Word Balloon. Um, I was telling you off the air how much I've enjoyed uh, kitch- The Kitchen and also Snowblind. You're, uh, you're a good crime, crime comic writer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, what got you into uh, wanting to do crime comics? Um. I well, I, I mean, I love crime comics. Like, well, yeah. Tell me some of your favorites. Well, I mean, I, I say I love crime comics. I, I, I do, but like, um, like uh, Scalped and Hundred Bullets for me. Sure, they're like two of the best comics ever. Um, and uh, like, it was. I, I never kind of like like I love writing crime, but it wasn't something that I like set out to be a crime writer. If you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, it just kind of happened that way because the, the kitchen. Because when I first started pitching to Vertigo, I pitched a few things, uh, but the kitchen was the one that kind of really stood out and got picked up. And then the same thing kind of happened with Snowblind, where I had like a lot of different ideas um, that I pitched to directly directly for Boom. Yeah, yeah. Well, they um, uh, pretty much straight after the kitchen, uh, I was speaking to them and. Um, yeah, I sent them over some pictures, and Snowblind was the one that uh, got their interest. So I think, I don't know, just, yeah, just kind of fell into it. And it's something I feel kind of natural writing, you know? Understood. Well, it, yeah, you seem very comfortable uh, writing uh, the genre. No, absolutely. <clears throat> um, 
No, and I love uh, – well, in, again, now what part of um, England are you in? Are you in London? No, no, just uh, just south of London in Brighton. In Brighton, okay. Yeah, did I grew up in uh, a little village just outside of Dover. And Dover's like the big port in like the south of southeast of England. Okay. Where everyone comes well, from, yeah. Well, that's why I'm impressed too that, you know, you're picking for you exotic locales. I mean, yeah. you know, kind of new New York in the seventies and then uh and then Alaska. Yeah. So what yeah, what made you decide to put these in, you know, from your perspective, these remote uh, kind of areas? Well, the thing with with uh, Snowblind setting in Alaska, it was um, I like for for people who haven't uh, read Snowblind, I'll try to yes. keep it like uh, as unspoilery as possible. But like, it's about a kid who finds out his parents in witness protection. Yes, and then set in set in Alaska, and yeah, he's yeah. kind of you know boring life, and then suddenly make discovers this secret about his parents. Exactly, yeah, and so I wanted him to live somewhere slightly isolated you know they they tried to get sure. his parents are from the south and they just wanted to like they wanted to get them as far away as humanly possible and like there's something about that kind of snowy kind of dark feel it's almost i was talking to someone else about this it's it's almost like noir but inverted like it's the same feel as like the shadows and stuff but instead you've got like the blankness of snow Sure. You know? And was, Absolutely. And yeah, so it wasn't really necessarily about like, um, about Alaska. It was about kind of like a, a particular look. Um, but with the kitchen, it's, I mean, 70s New York. Well, because I've, I've, yeah, because um, I've been reading about Irish gangsters in 70s New York, and that's where kind of like the idea for it started to uh, to kind of like mingle in my head. Cool. And um, it just seems like the, it's the perfect place to write about crime. Because, <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, I understand. Yeah, you've got you've got a city where it's you know it's descended to this level where almost it's crime is just everywhere. You know, um, the police can barely control it, but it's it's exciting, and there's there's culture and there's all this stuff going on, like you know music, like you know you've got like the punk movement, you've got hip hop basically being invented and like um it it it's a it's a time where like for a crime story you can write it without having to like i feel like these days it's it's hard to write modern crime stuff because there's cell phones there's um there's like internet crime and a lot of like criminals move into like drug dealing like a lot of people buy their drugs just online now Sure, it was like, sure. It was like there you had like drug dealers, and I'm not saying that's better. Yeah, you know, as a society, babe, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, internet. Yeah, well, yeah. But also, <laughs> also, I'm not like uh, I'm not trying to be this. Like, there's a certain amount of nostalgia for that time, but I'm not trying to say for like when when New York was in the 70s, but it was ne- wasn't this, but it was necessarily better because I know David Byrne uh, from Talking Heads. He talks about this phase. Sure. Yeah, you don't want to be nostalgic for that time just because there was good parts because there was an awful lot of bad. Absolutely. Well, no, but that's what's exciting about it. It was yeah. like this hotbed of cultural change and, and in these various pockets as well. But up against, um, you know, organized crime and these fiefdoms that were very much nationality based and mm. stuff that were going on for, for decades, if not even a century. Yeah, yeah. So I'm with you, man. Yeah. Absolutely. And, no, I get it. And it's, <laughs> and it's almost like um, 
the seventies that perfect kind of midway point, like as as things are changing, is like um, the old times are still very much present, but the new times mm-hmm. are just round the corner. Yep. Um, it's something. Sadly, actually... I'm old. I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> that was in Chicago. But no, you're absolutely right. And also, the seventies was kind of this half sixties hangover. Yeah. Every decade is like that. You know, I mean, early on in the decade, you're still kind of going through the motions of what went on in the previous decade. And then there's a sea change and, and you know, the things kind of develop into their own being. But, yeah, especially, uh, you know, just coming off of, you know, just the 60s, the hippie movement yeah. and, uh, and Watergate and, you know, everything happening in the 70s and stuff. So there really was this, like, kind of depression plus the energy crisis was going on the gas the gas shortage um i mean yet no it was a it was definitely this kind of grimy depressed time alongside as you say with some interesting cultural things that were happening and would bring in new eras in the 80s yeah and you you touched on an interesting point about like it being like still having some of the 60s kind of like moving into it it's almost like the 70s is almost like the death of the of uh, optimism in yes, American absolutely. culture. And then, oh, yeah. then you follow it up with um, with the 80s, where it's just let's make as much money as humanly possible. <laughs> and then, yeah. in fact, be, do a lot of blow. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> let's, just, let's just do a lot of coke and heroin and forget about forget about everything. Yeah. But um, <laughs> like it might, like it's, it's, it's definitely an era I'd like to go back to as well. Like, oh, cool. it'd be interesting to do more stuff there. And it'd be interesting to do, like, you know how uh, Mad Men is kind of like, uh, it kind of well, it begins in 63, doesn't it? And then ends in the 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's that interesting thing where it's like, it, you've got the tail end of the 50s and then the beginning of the 70s. It'd be interesting to do something like that of the 70s, of like, yeah, maybe stating, starting in like the late 60s and seeing that move in, move through the 70s and then to the 80s. Sure. But like, the weird thing I found when I was um, when I was doing the research for it, and it's something I don't know why it surprised me, but like it is something I never really thought about. It's like we when we look back, we clearly define these decades. Like, you know, it's like the 70s was this, the 80s was this. But but as you said earlier, they it's not how it was. It all bleeds in together. It's all kind of like yeah. W- as soon as it hit nineteen seventy, things didn't change automatically. Absolutely, it's all this organic thing. But like it's weird how just because we number it, it we we box it in our heads. You know. <laughs> well, you have a birth. You know, I I know when I. When I had a birthday, I, I, I turned 50 recently and I'm, I was dreading it. And then the day happened and it's like, well, it's still me. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is I'm still the same person I was yesterday. And certainly decades are the same way. No, you're absolutely right. And it does. It takes a couple of years. And uh, like I said, some sort of cultural sea change mm. just kind of happens. I, you know, I didn't realize until I was reading Ed Pisker's uh, hip hop uh, history that he's been doing mm. in, in comics and stuff. And um, – I didn't realize until reading it uh, the amount of influence, you know, bands like Blondie uh, had to help the hip hop generation get started in the late 70s. And oh, stuff. really? I, and I didn't. Yeah, I didn't realize that they kind of did kind you know, 
wound up at the same gigs and, you know, oh, you guys are great. You know, I oh, mean, and that kind of, yeah, didn't, you know. Didn't they do that kind of like slightly hip hop song? Um, oh, yeah, Rapture. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rapture, kind of, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's the thing, man. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're and their influence, Blondie's influence was reggae and yeah. uh, a few other things. And then and then all of a sudden, you know, they're hearing what uh, kids are doing in, in the New York neighborhoods and stuff. And they're like, oh, my God, that's great. Mm. And they and, you know, they they were influenced by it, but also really did kind of you know, kind of help them along as well. And it's, it's cool because yet yeah, you don't expect that it's where the inspirations or, or the influences and the help comes from. And it is neat that, you know, like a couple of people that are, are, you know, are a little more established were able to help them. Yeah. But yeah, it just, I think it does kind of happen culturally where you, you, it's where you don't realize where the new thing comes from and what old influences inspire the new thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Like, um, the, the the crossing over of influences where like you hear certain bands mention who influenced them you would never see it and then it suddenly makes complete sense after they say it mm-hmm. like you never yep. you never know where your influence is going to come from right and you and when you're you know certainly in music and in acting I've heard this as well when it's coming from your voice and your persona it automatically becomes something different because you're a different person interpreting it mm. and and you can maybe see the through line once. It's explained. But yeah, I've, I've heard actors even say that. And, you know, I mean, Woody Allen, of all people, was, you know, really influenced by Bob Hope and his 40s movie persona. And you look at those 60s and 70s Woody Allen movies. Yeah. And it's like, you know, totally different guy, short guy, red hair, glasses, you know, Jewish instead of, uh, you know, Irish or, or Scottish. I forget which uh, is Hope's background. He, I know he comes, his family came from, or actually maybe even straight from England. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's the thing you don't you know you don't realize what, where the influence comes from, and then you hear them talk, and it's there. I mean, it absolutely is there. That kind of breathy, yes, well, huh? <laughs> you know that that Woody Allen does yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's in those '40s Bob Hope movies, and it's like holy shit, yeah, they are linked, and it's you would never expect that. Yeah, I never knew that. There you go, man. That's, well, there you. Go. I'm sure you. I'm sure you're going to give me uh, you know the through line from the goons to the pythons. So yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's cool, man. You know. And the Goonies, or the Goodies, rather. I like the Goodies as well. Yeah, I was more of a uh, Goons. <laughs> I do. I never. Uh, the the Goodies was was always there. I always find it weird. Like, um, are you a Benny Hill fan? I like Ben. I loved Benny Hill when I was thirteen, yeah. and I really loved the whole backstory of Benny Hill and it going back to the music halls and stuff. Yeah. Go on. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's where most of it comes from. But like, um, I never get why Americans love Benny Hill so much. <laughs> Well, for me, it was the thirteen-year-old yeah. thing, you know, you know, and it was the burlesque of seeing the hot girls well, in yeah, their underwear yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, there is- and also, I loved. I saw that BBC bio documentary they did of Benny Hill, and I mean, I know that the women's groups really, obviously, uh, you know, came after him and are like, you know, you're misogynistic and all that. But I loved Michael Caine kind of standing up and being, "Oh, Benny Hill, he represents musical. Come on." <laughs> Relax. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's awesome. I'm like, very cool that Michael Caine's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, well, Michael Caine probably grew up around all that sort of stuff. It's, sure. It's his culture. But I mean, I, have you seen I, Have you seen Without a Clue? Have you seen his uh, Sherlock Holmes movie? Oh, with is ben that Kingsley? the one with Ben Kingsley? Yeah, where uh, yes. Kingsley uh, plays um, uh, Watson. Watson, yeah. But he's the brains behind it all, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, Michael Caine is this drunk kind of musical yeah. kind of comedian and is totally doing 
music hall comedy in this movie and stuff. It's it's great. I love it. I you know it was like in Chicago for like two weeks, and me and my buddies ran into it because we love Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and we're like, this is the funniest goddamn movie we've ever seen. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen that in years. I need to find that again. That's a cool movie, but yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. And that's something for the listeners too. Without a clue. Yeah, excellent. So go on. I, I stepped on you. What were you? I can't say? even remember what I was saying now. <laughs> oh shit! I'm saying. No, no, no. <laughs> I think I was talking about Benny Hill. Yeah, no, it's um, yes, yeah, this odd thing. Like, because I mean, I grew up with it. Like, it's but I haven't okay. watched it probably since I was a child. But it, of all the English stuff to get big, it just seems like the weirdest, <laughs> the weirdest thing. Like, like um, because I know everyone mentions Monty Python, and I understand. Like, I get that. Sure. Um. But yeah. yeah, Benny Hill was kind of Chaplin esque. I mean, in that in that kind of silent, you know, uh, the way too. Uh, Richard Lester, the way he would direct uh, yeah. the Beatles and stuff like that. That kind of double time chase stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it really, I mean, it's kind of universal. I mean, that's the thing is, it really was yeah. just silly, you know, silly chase comedy and everything. And it's like, well, you know, yeah. how that goes back to us with the, the Keystone Cops and all. So, so how yeah. how much is the Goons known? in america like is it is it a real comedy person thing or is it well known or i think it's a i think it's more of a comedy person thing because certainly people know sellers yeah uh i don't i don't think they know harry seacomb or, or spike milligan and, and michael and i always forget michael's last name oh the fourth yeah one. yeah well no because for me i came in well because my dad loves the goons but i uh i was always a huge spike milligan fan that's awesome uh, since i was a kid and i used to um when I was when I was a kid, we uh, we used to travel around Europe a lot. Cause my dad did business in Europe, so like every school holidays, we would just like jump in the car. We had friends all over, like uh, France and um, Switzerland and uh, Italy. Well, not actually, not really Italy so much, but um, yeah. So we spend all of most of my childhood was spent driving in the back of a car around Europe, and we'd listen to uh, audio books almost okay. instantly. Um, and that's how I got into Bill Bryson, because uh, Bill uh, Bill Bryson is like one of my favorite writers. But um, we used to like uh, BBC Studios. Um, they were like audio versions of their uh, of their shows. So we had like uh, Dad's Army and the Goons and things like well, Goons was radio, sure. Goons was radio anyway. But like um, mm-hmm. like Blackadder and things like that. Those two audio versions. Um, but we also so. We also used to listen to Spike Milligan's uh, war journals. Have you ever heard that my uh, Hitler, my part in his downfall? No, <laughs> no, I'm aware. No, and honestly, all, all I know of Spike is his goon stuff, and I'm aware yeah. of his Q series. I've seen oh, a couple yeah, yeah, sketches yeah. Oh, you should, that have survived. But you should, you should read that, and if you can, listen. To, yeah, listen, I, would, I want to listen Go to on. him reading it because, like, he's obviously he's like. He's the funniest fuck. Uh, sorry, could I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you can, you can totally swear. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, he's like the funniest fucking guy in the entire world. <laughs> but he's he's but the war messed him up. Like, and he you can tell he's like trying to like tell these stories of being at war with as much humor as possible. But like, yeah, it's a story of a guy sent out to war, like having to fight, and it's it's um, it's really wonderful. And like, especially like for me, like. Cause, uh, I grew up, my granddad was uh, in the RAF, so Understood. it's, especially if you're a war person as well, it's definitely worth, worth reading. And like I say, the way he does it, because his voice, he's just got one of those voices 
And he didn't he, he grew up um he grew up abroad, right? He didn't he grow up in like the Middle East or something? Or? I think wasn't it India? I want to say yeah. And I you know I mean that's the thing. I'm I'm literally kind of I'm I'm a big comedy nut and also a massive British comedy fan. And I just read an excellent book about the you know Beyond the Fringe guys mm. and you know uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore for listeners who may not know yeah. just from Beyond the Fringe. And, uh, and you know, and the same with the goons. And now I'm really kind of attacking the goons. And I saw a great BBC documentary on YouTube about them. And, yeah, I've seen a few of Spike's interviews. And as you say, yeah, this is a guy who clearly was affected by yeah. his, you know, his upbringing and his war experiences and stuff. And, no, it, he's an interesting guy. I, Sellers, I've kind of, you know, read a couple biographies. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I learned about as much about him as I could without actually talking to him. Yeah. There's a guy. There's a guy, obviously, again with his own psychoses and mysteries. Well, yeah, wasn't wasn't his thing that he um, uh, he took on like the role so much that he basically became that person. Yes, and Sid Caesar was like that too. Yeah, there was no there was no person beyond the character. Yeah, and in fact, they were so uncomfortable being themselves yeah you know so no and that's really interesting i agree well, and and that's why you know i'm it's you know most comedy people i think uh with the exception of it seems the the, the pythons seem to have had a reasonably adjusted thing although they had their dynamics i know terry jones and cleese would kind of get angry like cleese cleese had that great kind of middle class upbringing and everything i mean it was just kind of a shy guy yeah but beyond that really you know i mean there's a guy that could be naturally funny without really at least on the surface, seeming like there's any psychoses in the background, <laughs> like a Sellers or a Milligan or people like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's um, maybe it's a war thing. Maybe it's because uh, although yeah, did, yeah. Sellers was uh, Sellers, did he serve? I can't remember. Or was he? I can't either. He, I think he was of age. He might have been slightly younger, mm. but I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't remember because okay, he was younger than Milligan, wasn't he? It's he had to have been. Yeah. I mean, definitely. You know, because that's the thing. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think at least a good ten years younger. So maybe not. Maybe he was a kid. Yeah. I'm gonna have to. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. Because then, um, isn't there a thing like with uh, America? I haven't I haven't read it yet, but I think someone mentioned Steve Martin says it in his autobiography about how post Vietnam. You you got like him doing his like ridiculous like he does the show where he's got like the was it the arrow for his head yeah was mm-hmm. that post Vietnam right. and it's almost like uh, once you've gone through all of that <laughs> you you, that's you almost need just something that's not yeah just ridiculous you need something that's ridiculous you need something that's kind of like uh, taken outside of reality to take your mind off the fact that you've just been yeah, through something right. terrible. Absolutely. Well, I also think, and I and I, I was having this conversation with Tom King, um, the '70s filmmaking mm. got so realistic and so yeah, great. yeah, and and it was great, but it really was also very depressing as well. And then you know, like in '75 or '6, you get Rocky, and there's kind of a happy ending, and it really is a very '70s film. Mm. But then you you know you get this happy ending, and people like immediately responded, "It's best picture wins best picture." And it's almost like the studios and everyone else like, oh, I think it's okay to start telling stories with happy endings yeah, again. Yeah, but it's still 70s because um, it turns out he loses at the end. Right, <laughs> right. So it, right. Exactly. No, you're 100% you know, so right. So that's even, thing. It was... even the happy ending they give you is still like – still slightly right. – uh... 
Well, but they make it up in the sequel, and then he wins. Yeah, but you're yeah. right. No, you're you're absolutely right because at least, yeah. I mean, his happy ending is more personal. Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. yeah, but, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. No, but you're 100 percent right, and and that's the thing. I think, um, like you said, I think everyone from not only Vietnam but Watergate and that lack of trust and that cynicism that came from the 70s. Everyone just needed a break from it, and then of course, at least over here with Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan, and that. Um, you know, hey, let's get back to when things were good, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, it, and and you just kind of had that attitude and a lot of people bought into it. Some people bought into it for shitty reasons, but I think also just even average people that had no bone to pick with other people are just like, yeah, it'd be nice to be happy again. Let's try yeah. and find something to, to smile about. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just the kind of the way, the way things happen. I mean, I guess it's ebb and flow, you know, the nineties, um, were kind of a docile, like, Hey, maybe things are going to get better. And, you know, God, you know, relations seem to be normalizing with who always were our enemies. And it's like, oh, you know, and they, they, you know, the doomsday clock, they pushed it back from like five minutes to midnight to 10 minutes to midnight. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, terrorism became a real thing again and, and global. Um, you know, I always feel like an asshole coming from the States and terrorism <laughs> because you guys, every, everyone in Western Europe and really everywhere else in the world, I mean, you know, shit, shit gets bombed all the time. Yeah. It hasn't really stopped. It never really – I mean, it was it was happening in the 70s and 80s as, as well. It just wasn't happening here. And I just feel like sometimes the Americans can really be wussies about this where it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And it's like, well, it's been happening all over the world, man. Yeah, but didn't – I'm sorry. Yeah, but, I mean, again, not to be cavalier about yeah, it, but it's like – No, but you know. didn't you have in the 70s like um, – I can't remember whether the Weather Underground – Actually, blew anything up. It wasn't like yeah, no, you right. had left wing groups yeah. blowing up stuff. I mean, they didn't. Uh, yeah, they didn't really go out their way to kill people in the same way. But um, no, but you're right. And a couple of people would die, and then no, they'd blow yeah. up a library or a hospital or or a government building or something like that. So no, it did happen. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, you know, short short term memory. Yeah, short term memory. I guess it's seen as a slightly different thing. I don't know. It's, it's weird when yes. it when it's. Uh, yeah, when it's an outs when it's enough when it's seen as an outside threat, it's it's Exactly. It's, yep. Yeah. Um oh, this is good, man. We're we're world solving. I know. <laughs> I like it. Sure, was, no, this is what this is my convert I don't know if you ever listened before, but these yeah, are the yeah, kind no, of conversations no, 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 I have. I've, I've um I've listened to loads. Uh <laughs> well that's nice, man. Yeah. Thank you. I got I got into it um because like I said before, I'm a big hundred bullets fan, so I found it through uh, one of your Azarello interviews. Oh, excellent! You know, I love talking to Brian. Have you had the chance to meet him? No, we've uh, we spoke a little bit online, but uh, I don't oh, I don't know him really at all. Okay, are you going to get a chance to come over and uh, do any American conventions? Uh, I want to. I'm I'm half thinking about doing New York this year. Terrific! Um, Terrific. But I I've got some stuff in the pipeline. There's a part of me that thinks that. I need to, I need to see how they're panning out and see when they're going to be announced and it's almost like cuz cuz obviously it's it's quite an expense to come over to to New York. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, that's what's keeping me from going over it, to to England or some of the European conventions. It, Go on. Exactly and it's kind of um I want to make it worthwhile, you know. Certainly. But at the same time, I just I know so many people in New York now <clears throat> and well across the states and it's I just kind of I haven't been since I was like I've I've been to America twice. Went to New York when I was like thirteen, so I didn't get to really experience New York. Sure, yeah, we, sure. we would head we were there for like a a day, 
because uh, we've got family in Washington. So we we flew up to New York and then went to oh, um, fun. Yeah, well, I say family, like uh, very close uh, family friends. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, and then, yeah, I came over to Washington by myself when I was about 15 and spent like a week there. But, like, um, I need to come back. I haven't, I've, no. I haven't been there as an adult, so I need to. <laughs> No, I understand. Over la- Tell me- last time I was in America, I almost died. So maybe. <laughs> oh Jesus! What happened? Uh, I think I, I mean I might be misremembering the story because it's like over ten <laughs> years ago. But I remember being at family friends and we were watching about a tornado coming through Washington. It was something like okay. that. And then a tree. We heard something fall down in the back garden. We went out back, and this huge tree had just missed, crushing the entire house. And wow. like I said, I might be I might be exaggerating it through memory, and it might have been yeah, whatever. But uh, I'd never seen a tornado before. Yeah, England, we had we've had like a couple of hurricanes, like <laughs> at the very wow. most. Yeah, but sorry, you were saying. Um, no, I was I was just going to ask in in terms of uh, some of your American collaborators and stuff. Um, and you mentioned Azarello and Hundred Bullets, Will Dennis um, yeah. being edited by Will and stuff. And I keep trying. It hasn't happened yet, but in principle, eventually he's going to come on word balloon. Oh, you should, um, you should definitely get him. He's a great guy. Well, and you know, honestly, I've I told him for years um, when he was editing for Vertigo in DC. They, they've kind of they're they're leery about having editors do. Uh, I don't know about print interviews, mm. but certainly audio interviews. And that's the thing. And Will was always great and say, you know, hey, you know, the day will come that I'm not working here. And if, you know, we'll, we'll talk then. Yeah. And so when I heard he wasn't making the move <laughs> to Burbank, I'm like, all right, let's make it happen. Because I've just appreciated his creative eye uh, and picking, you know, the people that he does uh, did to work on Vertigo stuff. Did he... Did you get picked by him or was Will assigned to you when, when you got the kitchen? Um... No, if it happened, I was I was at a convention in London, and um, I'd literally, I think I'd wrote a few short stories, but like they were publishing like small press stuff over here, and sure. like yeah, you know, nothing anyone's uh, probably read, and um, I heard he was going to be at the convention, so uh, I thought I'd I'd try me in because you know he'd edited pretty much all of my favourite books. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sure. You look back through his back catalogue and it's it's ridiculous. Absolutely, man. Uh, no, I agree. Yeah, and um, so I just kind of uh, I I uh, tracked him down the con and started speaking to him, and I gave him, I think I gave him a copy of uh, some of my short stories, and to this day I still think he's never read them because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's always never mentioned them. But uh, no, but like, um, but we just stopped and chatted, and like, uh, yeah, we got along. And uh, he gave me his card and I emailed him like a few ideas. And then one of them was the kitchen. So that's kind of how it happened. Um, and it was a, a really cool thing about it is it's just, you know, I was just some guy with like, you know, barely anything published. Um, no one really knew who I was. Like I had a few friends in the industry, but, you know, no one knew, knows who I was back then. And he just liked the kitchen. Like it, it, it spoke to him and he just he pushed it through, you know. Cool. And uh, it was the last book he did at, I'm pretty sure it's the last book he did at Vertigo. I think you're right. Like, Absolutely. Um, like, he, we were right till the end. Like, I think, like, I'd written all the scripts before he'd left. And I think he left as, like, as Ming was finishing the last issue. Okay. Like, uh, wow. yeah, so, in fact, 
Yeah, yeah, no, he was. I think he got he got right through to the end. Like maybe, maybe she was still doing two pages. So it's quite. It was kind of um, for someone with such a great editing career at Vertigo. It was, it was really an honor to be a part of that and kind of like be the last book he was he was working on. Understood. Um, was did you did, were you part of the process in uh, picking Ming, or did he put you guys together? Yeah. Um, he he suggested her, um, and we 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 talked about a few artists. Uh, yeah, we we I'm trying to think back now. It's so long ago. Yeah, we 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 like talked about artists, but he he came to me with uh, with Ming, and her style just seemed so perfect. Agreed. And um, and so we approached her, and she said, "Yeah." And uh, I'm not sure if it worked. I've, no, because I think she'd done Mara and a few other things before The Kitchen. Probably, yeah. I mean, I just, I'd heard her name and stuff Yeah, prior to, prior to The Kitchen. I just felt that the two of you doing these scenes, and especially a lot of the real violent scenes, it reminded me, honestly, of Dave Gibbons uh, oh, wow. and, and, you know, some of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. it really did. And I, and I think it absolutely fit the story perfectly. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I, I loved about with her art is that the style of it fits that seventies tone so perfectly. Mm-hmm. So it has like a real, um, grittiness to it. Like it just goes all the way through, but also the thing that I think Ming just does so well is, uh, is like facial expressions, expressions and acting. Yes. You know, like there were so many times where I just cut dialogue from it after I'd see her artwork because it's, it's oh that's great yeah it's all being said in the face so no question yes. yeah no those no this would it would really make an excellent um, indie movie and I, and it's funny because I was reading that about Snowblind yeah. Garth, Garth Ennis obviously gave you the I know nice War, quote, Warren Ellis. or Warren excuse me Warren Ellis yeah same thing <laughs> did you did you see some oh, I can't remember who it was I saw some quote the other day where I think it was an actor was saying um. I think they might have just starred in like a comic book movie or something. They were saying, oh, yeah, I read comic books. I really love uh, The Boys, written by this Scottish writer called Garth Ennis. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I can imagine all the Irish people out there just getting gonna... angry as <laughs> hell about it. <laughs> but, That's awesome. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I was so lucky with um, getting put with uh, with Ming. Well, we have, you know, uh, with her saying yes to coming on board because like I'd, I'd read, I think a few issues of Mara and I'd, I'd seen her artwork, but I wasn't, you know, um, I didn't know it that well. So when, when Will suggested her, I just, uh, looked for all her blog posts and tried to get as much of her stuff as I could. And it was, I just knew that she was going to be something great for it. And for my first book, I couldn't have, I couldn't have got a better collaborator. Like really? she really just like threw herself into it. Like we used to just like all of us, like, uh, you know, Will, Jordy, Greg, our uh, assistant editor, mm-hmm. like we would just like send these like piles of, uh, research and reference photos and things like that to each other. And yeah, she, and she was just great. Like she, um, just because she's a, just, she's a really, like you were saying before we started recording, she's a really nice person and she was really good. And like, I was so nervous going in, like, 
like imagine you're like someone who wants to be a, a comics writer and you've written like a handful of short stories, nothing else. You want to be a comics writer. And then your first paid gig is with your favorite uh, publisher, <laughs> with your with your favorite editor doing a story that's like fits in, you know, like following on this tradition of like vertigo crime comics. And then suddenly like you know you've got like becky clune on covers so it's automatically got this like huge coverage there i was fucking shitting myself like i i did i I felt like i had no idea what i was doing you know oh really that no man i well your scripts yeah turned out good (laughs) i mean that's the thing i think the writing met the art oh well i'm glad you mentioned jordy as well because oh she, um, she is fantastic like she brought something to the book like no question yeah no, the mood, the the color really helps the mood of a lot of scenes. And um, also, I, I want to say that Ming was telling me, and I and I mentioned this to you off the air, but for the listeners, um, I met Ming in Cincinnati, and uh, th- it's it's on a word balloon where uh, we did a a sketch off panel with uh, Mike Norton and Chris Burnham, and uh, she was talking about how uh, both Jordy and Declan Shelby were sending, you know, telling her, hey, make it dirtier, you know, don't forget how dirty. New York is in the seventies, and it absolutely was. Yeah, it's a much grimier city. Yeah, I um, because I because she told me about that. I didn't see the pages she did before, um, before like uh, Declan and Geordie said that. I only saw her afterwards, and yeah, whatever they said to her, it was it was good advice because yeah, what she came <laughs> back, what she came back with was perfect. Like she nailed that feel down completely, and just absolutely. her and Geordie working together, it's like a perfect combination. Um, Great. Yeah. Um, it, and but I also sorry. Can I, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You, well, I, I was gonna, I was going to switch books, but so go ahead and you you continue because I. Uh... Well, I was, I was just going to uh, come back to just uh, Geordie's coloring. Like there was a particular. I'm trying to remember what issue it was, but it's the first. It's where Tommy comes back, or where they're talking about him coming back, and they're showing like him back in the day. And she's just drenched the scene in like red. And it almost reminds me of like, it's at the end of Taxi Driver where it's kind of almost drenched in red. I'm like, yes, yeah. Yes. And it just reminded me of that. And um, like I say, this was a point where I was still kind of like, obviously, I knew how comics are created, but um, yeah, I was really kind of like learning the process like firsthand. And uh, just seeing her coloring work, it really hit home to me how important the colorist is on a book. Like it was something you always knew, but until you're actually a part of it, like you don't, I don't think you can quite appreciate it for how much it is. You know, when you see it in the different stages of it coming through. And yeah. No, I, and, yeah, I agree. And, I, and maybe, maybe uh, my feeling with Watchmen and Gibbons too, uh, I should probably put, was in a, did John Rouch do the coloring? I think for, uh, for Watchmen, but it was that, like you just said, when Tommy's drenched in the blood, it reminded me of some of the more bloody Watchmen scenes too. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I never, I never made that connection, but yeah, that's where, that's where my brain went. Yeah, and also um, conversely, I really love uh, Tyler Jenkins' watercolors on uh, Snowblind. Yeah, it, it really gives it an exotic kind of look, and it's 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 a contrast in a good way, mm-hmm. I think, to to the story where. Uh, the softness of the watercolors and stuff, but it, but it, it really, I, I just love it. And also, it just reminds me of how great 
comic book art is now. And then taking nothing away from the old masters, the Kirby's and, and the four color, you know, giants. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it is so great that comic art has really evolved to include these kinds of styles and it really works. And I think it just makes for a, a much more, you know, diverse and interesting comic book world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, that, I mean, that, but that's what you say. It's, it's not to downplay the people who came before and do other styles. It's just, there's room for everything. Yep. You know, and when, um, when we got Tyler on board and he suggested that he wanted to watercolor it, like he came in with that straight away. And then he just, he sent a few, um, like concept pages over and I just instantly, it was just like, yeah, just go for it. Like, and he's ridiculously fast. Like for, for someone who's drawing and watercoloring their own book, like all, all by himself, I don't know how he gets the pages out so quickly. He's and, and of that amazing quality as well. Agreed. Like he is no, absolutely it's, astonishing. It, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I should probably talk to him because no, yeah. you're right. I mean, uh, yeah, I wonder if he does, you know, how tight his, uh, if he does breakdowns first and, you know, yeah, he was doing well for a while. He was doing like, um, like really rough pencils and then, um, and then he would send those to us for like us to look over and then he would do the inks and then he would watercolor it. But it was, wow. it was kind of nice. We kind of hit a stride where, and it, a similar thing happened with, um, with the kitchen where you just like, you, you trust the person you're working with so much. It got to a point where it's just, he just started sending the inks because it seemed like pointless adding this extra like uh, phase in it. Cause I, I knew what he was going to do. And I knew it was going to be perfect, so it, it, it seemed pointless. Like it, it was, we, we developed that sense of trust in it. For, it, it. I didn't need to see every minuscule part along the way. Understood. And the same thing with with uh, Ming, because um, Ming would Ming would occasionally like add panels, and but I'd always get like an email first saying like, "Oh, uh, do you mind if I add a panel here? Do you mind if I do this?" And then we got like an issue or two in. It was just like, you know, unless it's a major, major change, just go for it. Like, um, you know what you're doing and you know this book through and through. And it's the same with Tyler. Like, you know, I love that level of trust you can get with an artist. Where, That's terrific. You know, you're, both, yeah, you're both working. You, you, you're, you're both working to the same goal. So it should be a point where you can trust the person to change things slightly or make it feel right that's cool yeah. no that's great that you guys are able to also come to that kind of consensus as quickly as you clearly have in eight you know eight issues with uh with ming and four issues with tyler we've got one more issue left of snowblind mm -hmm. kitchen's out as a, a trade already isn't yeah it? yeah came out I think november that sounds right okay very yeah. cool and uh so you do have one you got one issue left of snowblind uh, from boom and uh, how quickly will the trade come out I think we were talking about it early next year. Okay. Like, oh, well, okay. It's gonna. It won't be till next year. All right. I think so. You... I'm not 100 percent on that. I don't have. Um, I don't have any actual dates yet. But I think. Um, I think most companies do this now. Where if it's like an ongoing, they'll release the trade very quickly to kind of like get people to jump on. But if it's uh, standalone, if it's standalone, I think they like to leave a gap to try and encourage. At least no no one's actually said that to you. I assume that's that's the reason why. Okay. Um, yeah, but I, well, I'm looking forward to seeing it in um, in the trade. 
Well, if people haven't followed you from the kitchen, they certainly should uh, pick up Snowblind and uh, and catch up. And it's you know it's only four issues and stuff. So mm. uh, if you can't find it at your store, I'm sure I'm sure Comicsology uh, has it as well. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about digital comics? Are you cool with them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I have a small Kindle rather than an iPad, so I've, tr- I've me too. That's yeah. fine. How do you find reading comics on the Kindle? You know, I got the original Kindle as well, and I thought I lost it, so I bought a newer one that's sli- the slightly smaller one. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I prefer it on the slightly bigger, older Kindle. Yeah. Um, but I do love how the colors and the art pops digitally. <laughs> yeah. And I, and it really, and especially on something like Snowblind. I mean, that's the thing. The watercolors look lovely on it. I'm looking at my Kindle right now. Yeah. And uh, no, it, it really does. I, I think, um, so even though you get that page reduction, um, I don't think it's that that big of a hindrance, and um, I, I think the art looks amazing. Yeah. So so it doesn't. Yeah. I'm, I, so I'm cool with it, and I actually I, I sometimes prefer it, especially with magazines because of the clutter that ends up happening. So yeah. I kind of do prefer to buy, um, you know, initially digitally, and then if I really want to, you know, have a trade or something like that, then go and, and get the trade. Yeah. I I because I um. I was buying digitally for a couple of months last year, but I found the Kindle just slightly too small for me. Like I didn't quite get, couldn't quite appreciate it. Um, but I'm the same. Like, cause I prefer, I got into comics through trade paperbacks, not issues. Okay. Um, so for me, that's, you know, that's how I prefer reading it. But I, st- I buy, I still buy lots of issues now. Cause like I want to keep up with stuff. Sure. Um, you want to support people cause you know, yeah, I agree with that too. Like, yeah, go on. Yeah, we got this weird thing with comics of like, you know, it's, it's almost determined that you have to buy issues, otherwise uh, a series won't necessarily finish. You know, agreed. Yeah, but um, I feel that way even more so. Yeah, about the image books. I, mm. I, uh, I mean, I'm ha- I'm I'm happy for the you know creators I'm friends with when they have their DC and Marvel books, but I just feel more. Because it is, I, I just know that it is, you know, creator owned, and that they they really are getting the money. Yeah. Um, and I think they, I honestly think a lot of times too, um, they're putting more of an effort in. And, I, and when I said, I mean, DC and Marvel as opposed to the other publishers. So Boom stuff fits in there, and uh, mm. you know, the smaller publishers and stuff. I kind of try to support them as well, um, because yeah, I think I think they're the ones that are putting out more ambitious. I think projects and are, are going in these these different directions. When you say you you started with trade paperbacks, how old were you when you started reading comics? Well, I read I read comics when I was when I was a child, but it was like Tintin, okay. and Asterix and Obelix, sure. like all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, I didn't read. I must have read some Batman because my brother liked. He he read a few comics, so I must. But like they weren't really around the house. Okay. Um, so I must have read some American stuff. When I was younger, but it was mainly just English, like uh, Beano and Dandy, like humor comics, and uh, mm-hmm. and then Asterix and Ob- oh, I can't even say the word. And then uh, Asterix and uh, and then Tintin. Um, sure. But it wasn't until probably about eighteen, nineteen, that I properly got into American comics. Um, and that's when my, I think my brother gave me Watchmen and Sin City to read. Oh, cool. And then, and then a friend of mine lent me Preacher and Transmetropolitan. Terrific. And so those were the kind of like the that's what 
first like really got me into uh, into American comics, and then straight after that it was Hundred Bullets and um, Wide Last Man uh, and Hundred Percent by Paul Pope, which is still one of my sure. favorite comics of all time. I mean, I, all, appreciate that. I mean, this yeah. Uh, I mean, this is why I think that um, I always rate Vertigo so highly is because, I mean, aside from Sin City from that list, pretty much all of the, I think all of that was Vertigo. So Yeah. 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 You're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Isn't it interesting that it took other publishers um, that long to kind of, you know, I don't know if it was cracking the formula mm. or just obviously working directly with some of these creators, because in some cases, obviously, some of these creators just, you know, decided to do their own thing outside of Vertigo and that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, no, I used to, I, I the, the few times I met Karen Berger, I'd always be like, you know, nice going. I'm yeah. like, thank you for, like, elevating comics and stuff. And certainly, again, the creators uh, that she had, you know, were the ones making them and stuff. But that there was this. Uh, editorial eye that said, no, this stuff is good. And, you know, yeah, we can do this. I mean, God, Marvel tried for a really long time with Max, the Max imprint and some of these others to kind of crack that vertigo code. They couldn't do it. But did they ever, I know they've got, they've got that icon. I don't know if they still got it. They got that. Oh icon. yeah. They've got icon. Oh yeah. Finally. Yeah, but, I agree. I, yeah. You know, finally. But they never, and again, it was, it was really, icon was really only open to, the people that had established themselves with their mainstream characters or had already had successful Vertigo series as well. I mean, Jason Naren got an icon book. Bendis yeah. and Fraction got icon books. You know, it was a, it, you know, Ramita Jr. I mean, it, that's the thing. It was a really small group yeah. of people and didn't even, that were given that try. I might be wrong about this because uh, Criminal started off at icon, didn't it? I was going to say, yeah, that's funny because I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Brubaker is obviously another but one. Didn't, Bru- that, yeah. didn't Brubaker pay Sean... Out of yes. their own pocket at first, yeah. So even then, they're publishing it, but they're not—they're not putting the money up. Well, that's a good point, and yeah, maybe, maybe or uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know how the money broke down, yeah, uh, for Criminal initially, um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, it was you know them doing their own thing, and that's why Ed now you know is pretty much any comics he makes, they're all oh, yeah. creator owned, and uh, thankfully, you know, there's enough of an audience that they can do their thing. I love what Rucka and Michael Lark are doing with Lazarus. I still haven't read that actually. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. It's great. It really is great. Um, you know, I mean, it's, do you think, um, you know, once you get a little more established, would you ever collect your older stuff and put out an anthology or something like that? Would you be able to, if you wanted to? Oh, what the short, the short stories? Yeah. No. Yeah. No interest, okay. <laughs> oh, it's like your high school pictures or something. Exactly, I yeah. That. I mean, I wrote that stuff when I was like uh, early 20s. Okay. Like a lot All of right. it was like early 20s. And yeah, I don't think uh, – <laughs> I mean, maybe – I don't know. I'd have, to, I'd have to drag some of it out and see. In fact, okay. actually, weirdly, the first story I ever had published and drawn – was drawn by Mike Dowling, who's drawing on Follow for Vertigo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sure. Rob Williams uh, stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know Rob and Mike really well. Actually, you know, weirdly, Mike, I've known, yeah, since I started comics. And I think that, uh, I think that the short story we did together, it was one of his first ones as well. Very cool. Like, yeah. So we've kind of, it's been kind of nice, the two of us kind of, um, working up together it's it's nice to see people you start with doing well as well 
I don't know how long, you know, I mean, I, I hope Bonfalo goes as long as it needs to, to, to finish the story, but, yeah. uh, is that would you and Mike down the road want to do something together? Have you talked about that? Oh, definitely, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, no, we've uh, we've spoke about it before. Nothing's um, nothing's ever quite come up, but uh, I, I mean, I'd work with him in a heartbeat. But also, like him and uh, him and Rob, they're such a perfect pairing that I, to be honest, I'd want to see. I'd more want to see them do something else together. After unfollowed, well, hopefully I see unfollowed go to its full like you know fifty Absolutely. issues or whatever. Yep. But I'd love to see them two doing some something else together as well because it it fits together so perfectly his art style and uh, Rob's uh, style of writing. Um, That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's like when you see um, Ennis and Dylan. Sure. Finally working <laughs> together, you know. I do. Yeah. I understand. You know, I just I had Rob on for the first time. Last summer, yeah, uh, I heard just that. As, as Martian as Martian Manhunter was getting started, and he was talking about unfollow, and yeah, believe me, it's in the back of my mind. It's like, oh, I gotta gotta get Rob <laughs> back to talk more unfollow and stuff. Honestly, one of the things I'm trying to avoid is that uh, <laughs> DC Vertigo red tape of setting up interviews. I'm telling you the truth, man. Oh really? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, it's 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 fine. It's just that there's just always more hoops to go through. For, for DC and Vertigo books than any other publisher. Any other publisher, it's like, hey, I want to talk to so-and-so. Oh, here's his email. Or if you've already got it, um, it's like, oh, hey, we saw, you know, you talked to so-and-so. Thank you. And it's like, sure, oh, really? no problem. Yeah, you can talk directly. But yeah, now DC and Vertigo, it's... Uh, so is that... Uh, can we... Sorry, carry on. No, I was just going to say, yeah, sometimes they're like, uh, can we hear the interview first? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fine. Is, is that more, Whatever. Than, more of a marvel as well then? No, oh, not at all. Not a, and I don't know. I mean, I've been doing this ten years, and mm. uh, you know, got a lot of guys when podcasting was brand new, and they put in nice. Maybe they put in nice words for me. I don't know how it is for other uh, podcasts, uh, and I'm appreciative if I am getting any sort of special <laughs> treatment. But honestly, I don't think I am. Yeah, uh, because they're just like, no, you're promoting our books. Please talk to these people. Yes, fine, thank you. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just it, honestly from the from day one. DC and Vertigo has have always been a bit more corporate. There are no uh, barriers talking to Marvel editors. They're like, sure, you want to talk to an editor? Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas again, DC and DC and Vertigo, yeah, we'd really rather not. And it's like, okay, oh, that's that's <laughs> that's so strange. I hear you, man. Like, so- and I, honestly, it's like, all right, I go, you know, um, if it's easier to talk to all these other publishers. Guess who I'm going to be talking more to? I mean, you know, it's just it's just that way sometimes, man. And it's like, all right. I mean, if that's how you guys want to do business, it's cool. But yeah, well, because you know, whatever. I've only ever been on the other side, so um, sure. I didn't realize uh, I didn't realize that was the case. I guess I can understand wanting to be protective and wanting to, um, you know, yes. I, I mean, you know, it's I, you know, and and sure, there are assholes and there are gotcha interviews and yeah. stuff like. But I, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And also, I understand, too, because the job does change hands. Mm. So the people that I was dealing with back in 05 and 06 are not the same people today. But, you know, that's the same. The truth, that's the way it is at Marvel as well. And I'm like, okay, it just seems to be handed down of, oh, hey, John, how's it going? I'm the new guy. Nice to meet you. Um, Yeah, we understand you're talking to Bendis. Great. (laughs) It's like, okay. I guess guess it's that weird push and pull between creative stuff and corporate stuff exactly um, yeah 
But well, and I came from sports too, and honestly, in sports and politics, um, of course, there are more hoops. Of course, you have to uh, go through things. So yeah, I think you're right. I think, and it's, and especially given that DC was always a corporate arm of a bigger a bigger conglomerate mm. versus Marvel that was its own thing until Disney bought them. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe that's why. Well, I, I, you know, I guess. Have you noticed the difference in DC since they got uh, not DC? Have you noticed the difference in Marvel since they got bought by Disney? No, still no, the they're same. still no. Literally, like Kevin Feige and Dan Buckley are the only two guys that I can't seem to get, and the only reason why Dan is just like I'm just going to say something that I probably in two months will realize I probably shouldn't have said it, <laughs> and he's like, so he goes, you can talk to anybody else, John. It's okay. And I like Dan. Dan's a good guy. I've never met Kevin Feige, and I've asked about doing interviews, and they're like, yeah, probably not. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, I shrug, but it's like, all right, no problem. I'll talk to there's, – there's I'm like, you know, Casada. I'm like joking. I still talk to you. He's like, of course. I'm like, great. And the same with the – you know, with Dan. I'm like, can I talk to Axel? Can I talk to uh, Brevoort? You know, any of these guys? And he's like, sure. And I'm like, then don't worry. Yeah. There's plenty of people to talk to. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, – no, that's, that's got to be strange. Um, it is strange. It is strange. I won't deny it, man. I mean so. – yeah, maybe we'll see what happens with this reboot. Maybe they'll they'll loosen up a little bit over at DC. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, regardless, yeah. I mean, have you got um, you know as so Snowblind is wrapping up? Um, I, I assume you'll be having some new announcements coming up this year. Uh, I've got one thing which we're just about to sign the contracts on. Terrific. Um, which I can't talk about or say who it's for. Understood. <laughs> well, yeah, no, man. If you don't, say, hey, man. That's the thing. I get that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, no. If you know, some secret by all means. Yeah. When it's time to announce it, you will announce it. But um, yeah. So I've I've got that, which looks like it's uh, definitely going to happen. And I think we maybe later on in the year going to announce that. And then I've got a few other things in the pipeline, which we're kind of trying to work out right now. Okay. Um. Yeah, no, I've got nothing. I, there's nothing I can really talk about. Um, no like I'm hoping to do. Well, I'm hoping to do more work at Vertigo soon. Terrific, um, excellent. Yeah. Who are, who would your could you say who your editor would be now? Or again, if that's not privileged information, or if it is privileged oh, no, information. Um, speak well, so, uh, when uh, when Will left, I started speaking to Shelley. Okay. Uh, like she gave me Shelley a yeah, she gave me a call and said like about doing some more stuff over there and i've been speaking to jamie jamie rich a bit jamie rich awesome very yeah. good uh, tom, tom king and i just did a word balloon and uh, he's uh the editor of uh, sheriff of babylon another yeah. good vertigo book so yeah very yeah cool. i've only read the first issue of that but that was really good oh man what a that's another great yeah yeah i mean the cool thing is i really think the influx of new people at vertigo uh i think the magic is coming back i really do yeah and honestly no lie, man. And again, you were like you said, it was one of Will's last books. But that what in a in a sea of you know just competent books, but nothing really exciting and stuff. Uh, I really felt like the kitchen was like, wow, look at that. That's awesome. And I had that same feeling about Sheriff of Babylon. Mm. So and Unfollow was another great book like that. I mean, that's the thing. So I do kind of think like, okay, it seems like you know after all the different changes that have happened recently. Um, at Vertigo and stuff, I kind of think that, uh, you know, they're, the magic is back and they're starting to put out interesting books again. And I'm glad that you've got something new in the pipeline for them. That's terrific. Yeah, well, uh, just we're just in the talking phase right now. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so nothing, nothing solid yet. But I, I, but I also feel like uh, I feel like with Vertigo, it's almost like one of those companies where I feel like the doors open for me to always talk to someone there. Terrific. Um, and it's it's kind of nice. It feels like that. Yeah, it's just somewhere where it's like if I have a new idea, I can run it past, and they can yeah, you know, they'll say yes or no. But yeah, it's it's it, it's nice to have those. Uh, pre-established relationships like because after will left yeah when when your when your guy at a company leaves it's kind of it's it's difficult to know where you stand sure yeah because that's the person you've been speaking to that's you know absolutely yeah your godfather for lack of a better yeah like um oh what's they saying is it in police terms your rabbi your rabbi sure man Uh, there you go uh, (laughs) (laughs) but um Especially because he was the guy, you know, who brought me into comics. But um, but no, they've they like uh, Shelley's been nothing but welcoming with me there, and like always encouraging me to send over stuff. So uh, we're talking about a few things, but I hope I get to do more stuff there in the future. Cool. And who's editing Snowblind for you, by the way? It is uh, Eric Harbin and uh, Jasmine Amiri. Very nice. Okay. Yeah, and uh, they've been great like working on that book, like they've both been really cool, like really, really supportive and really like really helped kind of like shaping stuff into like they, they had like, um, they had a lot of notes, but it was always kind of like in this, these are just ideas. These are just like ideas we've had, like, and there was a lot of like back and forth and I, it, it, I really kind of liked it. It was kind of, it's almost like when you have to state your position, if, if someone says, oh, but have you thought about doing it this way? It makes you reef. It makes you really kind of like think about, do I, do I, oh, what's the right way of saying this? I'm really muddling it up. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like someone tells you to change something. If you don't want to change it, it makes you really have to think about it. It makes you really have to kind of like argue the point on both sides in your head. Certainly, you tr- well, you trust their opinion enough exactly, that you are yeah. willing to hear out their their argument, for lack of a better word. Yeah, exactly, and it makes it makes you think about. It. But if they come back and they say sure. maybe you should change that, and you automatically just go, "Oh yeah, no, you're right. That's that's fine." Then you know you can let go of it. But like if if you suddenly feel like no, this is really important, and then you state a case, then like nine times out times out of ten they'll go, "Oh yeah, now we see." Now we see where you're coming from. Now we see why that's there. Or maybe like they'll say, "Oh, you need to make that clearer." Um, I mean, sure. I mean, I had the same thing with Will. Uh, I feel like um, with the Kitchener, it came a lot more fully formed to, to Will. So like there was there was a little less of that. Or maybe because I was more kind of new, it kind of felt it felt different. But um, but you know, but working with Boom's been great. That you know. They seem to be publishing some really good stuff at the moment. Like, Agreed. Like, have you read uh, Arcadia? I have not read Arcadia yet. That's a really cool book uh, by a guy named Alex. Um, yeah, that's definitely one worth checking out. It's just it's nice to see these smaller companies kind of like getting a bit more traction. Agreed. And, you know, Boom, over the last couple of years, have always done really good crime comics. I loved The Wash. I loved uh, Two Guns. And I'm a Stephen Grant fan, so anytime Stephen Grant is doing something new, yeah. he's got my attention. Uh, so, no, I think, you know, and, uh, they, you know, Philip Sablik's an old friend, and I loved his stuff when he was 
at Top Cowan. I think he's been a good uh, addition to uh, Boom and the people that that work under him. And I just I like Russ. I've always liked Russ Ritchie. Mm. I think he's he's a very enthusiastic guy. And again, from day one, was like you know if an interesting superhero thing comes, I'll listen to the pitch. But to be honest, I'm more interested in the other genres because there's a great world of other subjects out there to cover in comics that weren't happening. And it just seemed like he got it from day one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, like I like superhero stuff. Um, I'm not, Would you I, ever want to, you know, do a superhero pitch or whatever? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I did, uh, I did a short Wonder Woman story for the uh, Sensation Comics. Oh, very good, man. I didn't yeah. realize that. Very cool. Yeah. The digital first stuff. Yeah. Very good. Actually, that was the first thing I ever had published because of the way it worked out like that was a much quicker turnaround um so i drew that for you it was amy meberson very cool very cool it was like a wonder woman meets catwoman story yeah all right (laughs) but um no so i've done it and i'd I'd definitely be interested especially now like a super comics like Maybe, well, like, yeah, not maybe, in a, in a reaction to kind of like the other companies are starting to do some more of di- like uh, diverse superhero stuff. And it definitely seems like a cool time to do some superhero things. Like uh, I'm loving uh, Chip Sadarsky's uh, Howard the Duck at the moment Ducky. and Joe Queen. <laughs> like, is it, who's, wait, who's the artist on that? Is it? Yeah, Joe Quinones, you're right. Joe Quinones, yeah, 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 sorry, yeah. Um, like that, I'm just, yeah, I'm loving that at the moment. It's yeah. so good. And like, uh, I've only read the first issue, maybe two issues of Hellcat. And it just seems like mm-hmm. there's this opportunity. To, and like, I know other companies do do superhero stuff and some really great superhero stuff, but you almost feel like the big two have got that down. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah, you know, they could diversify a bit more. They could, you know, um, do some different things with it. But. I mean, I wouldn't ever pitch a superhero comic to someone else because it feels like they've got it established. Agreed. Agreed. Have you have you read Tom King's Vision? I haven't. No, I need to. Uh, I need to. I've Very heard. ex machina. If, if if you saw the ex machina film, I love. Yeah, love that it's, film. Oh, it, really? It's that same. Yeah, it's that same kind of uh, vibe in a good way. Oh wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I keep I keep comparing it to Ray Bradbury, which sounds so lofty, but it really <laughs> does remind me of a Ray Bradbury kind of short story. Yeah, or a, or a really good Twilight Zone or uh, Black Mirror, isn't it? Black Mirror, oh, your guys. Uh, yeah, that's uh, what a great fucking show! Holy shit! Yeah, do you know what I've I've <laughs> I've never seen the third episode of both both uh, series. Both I, series, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen the third episode mainly because it's so fucking dark that i after after two episodes like the third one like you know i'll watch it like as it comes out weekly and like i watch the first one it's always amazing and the second one's normally much more dark and horrible yes and then like the third week the third one's coming on i just turn around to my wife and she goes i i can't watch it and then, like a year later, the second series comes out, and it's like, watch the first episode; it's amazing. Second one, oh my god, this is amazing, but dark as hell. And then the third episode comes out again, and I did the same thing for like two years in a row. That's hilarious. Uh, no, I, but no, that's you, that. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing the new one because after it was at the Christmas special, I had John Hamm. 
Yeah, I heard that, and I I still haven't seen it. But yeah, I heard about that. That's that's fucking amazing. Like, I hope I hope Netflix has it on there because that's how I've been watching. Yeah, it. I'm pretty sure it does. Because Netflix, okay, cool. Netflix bought it, didn't they? Oh, I suppose so. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I uh, you see, like a lot of my British TV. I mean, yeah, I love Sherlock. I love Doctor Who. I love Luther. Those are the obvious ones. Yeah. But every now and then, I'll like find a deep cut show through public television. And my guilty pleasure, and it's a much lighter show than, than Black Mirror, uh, was was New Tricks for so many years. Oh wait, is that the one? Amanda, yeah, yeah, the- Amanda Red Red uh, Redman and uh, Jerry Mulligan and uh, those, you know, Dennis or Red De- Dennis uh, uh, Water Waterman, not uh, Jerry Mulligan. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Dennis Waterman from the Sweeney, which I loved uh, and discovered yeah. and loved and and saw that whole uh, show series. Uh, and, and it's great seeing, you know, young Dennis Waterman on that and yeah. kind of imagining it's the same guy, does he, you know, th- 30 years later. Does he sing the theme tune for New Tricks? He does. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He always- and like I said, I know it's a quaint little show. No, but no, I really, yeah, that's no, cool. I love him. I, I think it's funny. And God, Alan uh, Arbush or whatever his name, or um, I can't think of his name now. But he was kind of the weird kind of oh, ADD guy. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they really like you know in the tenth in the final season, which I'm now watching because it's on public television here. Um, it's a completely different cast. I mean, literally, even Dennis Waterman was like gone by the second episode of of the tenth series. Yeah, and and it was. I'm like, oh man, and I like all the replacement people. They're fine, but it's it's a shame because really that original core group. They were just – they were funny and they were good and w- they would have little dark moments and uh, they were just excellent actors, all of them. Yeah. You know, and Amanda Redman, I, I loved her in uh, Sexy Beast. Oh, you know, God, yeah. You that, know, so that yeah. that was my in. I'm like, oh, God, she was great in Sexy Beast. I bet this is good. And really then, yeah, just kind of enjoying the other actors as, as they did it. And I'm like, shit, this is an awesome show. You know, I've rewatched uh, Sexy Beast uh, like a few months ago maybe. Okay. Like maybe – yeah, so at some point mid last year, still holds up. Oh I've my, seen it in the last year. Yeah, yeah. I I'd forgotten just how great that film was. Same with um, I rewatched it last night. The Limey. Great movie. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, like they're they uh, no, they're they're very different movies, but they're, they're this kind of similar kind of almost art house approach to crime. Yes, definitely. And absolutely. Which I wonder if you could still do these days in film. I wonder. Because that that kind of that, I guess mid range budget crime film. I guess yeah, no. I well, guess you, I guess you still do actually. Because well, you can from a I think from a from a budget standpoint. The question is, um, I don't know how the studios equate what used to like play in art houses, like you say, because the same was here. But now too with on demand TV, um, if you live in a in a area that doesn't have great art house theaters sometimes they'll, you know, have a, a new release and you can still get it yeah, and, and see it like that. But yeah, it's weird. It seems like a lot of the ambitious ideas that you would see in art house films happen more on TV. Jody Housier and I, and I were talking about Orphan Black. Yeah. And that, and that pilot episode could have been a great art house movie. Yeah. The first episode of Orth, Orphan Black. Yeah, no, definitely. And also even like, even not necessarily art house, but uh, crime stuff, it feels like that's, found its hope like since the sopranos like true that, that i mean that that kind of like type of uh type of crime film like you don't i guess you don't really see it as much or maybe i'm just not kind of well it depends because like there was the drop 
And wasn't that? Oh um, yeah, I haven't seen that as Gandolfini and Tom Hardy. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing. So they still make them. Yeah. You know, did, were you a uh, a fan of the television show Spooks? I saw a few episodes. It wasn't really because I because I'm really bad with English stuff because I I probably watch more American TV than I do <laughs> English TV. Well, I'm always interested in. <laughs> European crime and spy stuff and caper stuff mm. because the locales make it more exotic. God, even um, Strike Back being shot in Africa, yeah, I thought was, um, and also Charlie Jade was shot in South Africa as well. And I just love that because they're in different cities and different locales like that, they just become different things, much like your stories uh, and doing Snowblind in Alaska and even doing you know uh, the kitchen in seventies New York. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And I love Spooks. And I, I have – I bought the DVD of the Spooks movie that came out last year. Oh, yeah. And I haven't sat down to watch it because I love uh, the guy who plays uh, Harry Reid. And I forget the actor's name. Uh, Colin uh, – I can't think of his name. No, I can't think. Harry Pierce, I think, is his character on uh, – yeah. He was, the, yeah. he was the Russian officer at the beginning of Hunt for Red October. Oh, okay. That Sean yeah, kills. yeah. Right at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So great, great actor. Uh, or Peter. Peter. Peter Firth? No, I Colin Firth is probably what I'm thinking, but it's close to that. No, I think it might be that. I'm really oh, – Okay, I'm, there you go. I'm useless with people's names. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's – you know, and honestly, half the reason why I'm doing this too is I know the listeners are always looking for other things to watch. Yeah. And, and so you know, it's good to kind of go over the list and, and people will be like, all right, I got to I got to find that. Did, so. did you check out – it came out quite a few years ago now, but did you check out the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy film? Oh, yeah. Oh, the movie? The new movie? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I grew up with um, – it was the Alec – The original. Yeah, the Alec Guinness one. Oh, the, yeah, that's so good, man. Yeah. I, and that's the thing. I You know, I'm a Rumpole in the Bailey kind of guy and I love – uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, the original, and Smiley's People. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are no, those are great. And yeah, I, I got to say, um, and now I'm blanking again. Commissioner Gordon uh, did a good job as George Smiley. Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, of course. Yeah, well, I, so. I, I still think like that film. Like, I I love that film, and I've uh, it, despite not being a particularly diverse cast, because obviously it's all pretty much white males. But true, true. It, it was. Um, I mean, yeah, that that's the story. But um Yeah. But it was almost like a masterclass in British acting. Agreed. Like again, you know, of a particular section right, of, of, of the white of the white of the white males. <laughs> yeah. But, but of, no, you're absolutely no, right. Yeah, it was. Of, of that, yeah, because I mean you had what is it, Cumberbatch, Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, um Hardy. Who? Isn't Hardy in it? Isn't Tom Hardy in it? Oh yeah, no, Was, he is. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. is. Tom Hardy. I mean, um, and even uh, I always blank on his name, but he. Is, oh, John. Oh, John. Uh, John Hurt. Yeah, and but who's the? Um, Toby. Um, Toby Young. Toby Jones. Sorry. Toby Jones. Toby Jones. Yep. Yeah. And so, who are, you, who are you thinking of? There's a guy. Have you ever seen This Is England? No. Oh, no. you need. To, uh, we're going to digress right. now, but Shane Meadows, uh, he is one of the greatest English directors like of our time, but also probably of ever. Okay. And he does, he, he sets almost all of his films in the Midlands. Okay. Um, he started off with, I think it was 24 seven with, uh, Bob Hoskins. Okay. I love Bob um, Hoskins. Yeah. And he's great in that. Um, and then he did, what did he do after that? 
I can't remember the chronology of his films. We did uh, Dead Man's Shoes with Paddy Considine. Considine, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. Because well, he, um, him, and Paddy knew each other from I think like university or school or something. Hilarious. And uh, Paddy's in all his like first films. Like I don't think he's in oh, cool. Seven, but he's in uh, he's in Dead Man's Shoes, which is an amazing kind of like crime revenge story. And uh, another great film, A Room for Romeo Brass, which uh, Paddy Constantine... Is it Constantine or Constantine? I can't remember. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know. You guys know better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go with Constantine. Um, yeah, he's, and he's fantastic in that. And, uh, okay. and then he did, um, about five, six years ago, maybe longer, he did a film called This Is England, which is all about kind of uh, skinheads in the 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. And then he followed it up with, uh, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing for skinheads because it started off not as necessarily a racist thing. It was like, uh, it was just a... Kind of an offshoot of punk or what? You know, yeah, or... kind of. It was like, there was, it was, but it was a huge, it was more a huge influence of, um, of uh, black people coming to England in like the 60s. Uh, 50s, 60s, but like... Um, and a lot of white and black people working together. And then, like, the original skinheads, they were all into ska and uh, two-tone and reggae. Oh, oh, man. I loved all that music. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a big thing. Yep. Sorry, that's my buddy's <laughs> phone going off. It's okay, man. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> it's all right, man. Don't worry about it. Uh, you apologize. He's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> but um, but yes, yeah, so it kind of started off as like a mixture of like um, it was a working class kind of thing and a mixture of like okay. um, a mixture of two cultures and a lot of like second generation uh, black people in England. And okay. uh, and <laughs> <laughs> is that going off? Cheerful again? music. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it didn't start off as like the racist thing it was, but like. Uh, but because it was like a poor time in England and because a lot of the people in those groups were like disaffected Jews, it, the far right kind of got hold of a lot of them. And that's why skinhead culture in England kind of became seen as a, uh, as a racist thing. Interesting. But it didn't, it didn't necessarily start off that way. I mean, I'm no expert, you know, I'm, um, but the film delves into it a lot. And it's, this, this is England. This okay. thing, and then it was followed up by uh, a TV show. Um, but, but I think it's like a free series of TV show where it's like, this is England is set in 80, whatever. And then the next one's like 88. Then this is England 89. It kind of follows the characters through. Okay. And it's really interesting. Cause he, um, he uses a lot of like pretty much, um, pretty much entirely unknown actors and he improvises a lot and they kind of really bring a lot to the characters. Like I remember, I can't, I think it was on a film where like they changed the entire story of the film because an actor had a good idea for what their character should be. Wow. And so he just changed it. And Jesus, that's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's ambitious. That's very cool. Um, yeah, and I think... Um, and I can't remember the name. So I know Paddy Constantine, he came out of that, and he, you know, he's gone on to be really big. And there's a few other people you'd, you'd probably recognize if you didn't necessarily know their names. But, okay. Um, yeah, I'm always surprised that Shane Meadows isn't more well-known. Outside of England. I mean, maybe it's because he's so focused on not just English culture, but this one particular part of English culture. 
Well, I feel that way about the Irish actor that did uh, Jekyll with Stephen Moffat. Um, James, oh God, he was, uh, Murphy's Law was his, uh, another one of his uh, shows. Was it James Reston? Does that sound right? Again, I'm bad with names. So. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up while we're talking. But yeah, you know, he's a yeah. great Irish leading actor and hasn't done a lot of American TV, but everything I've seen him in, and mostly it's been uh, limited series, he's, he's always excellent. And, um, you know, I'm like, why isn't this guy bigger? Yeah. Well, it's some- I'm looking up the name while we're talking. So, well, sometimes you wonder whether they want to be. Because like, cause like, true. From what James Nesbitt. Oh, James, James Nesbitt. Nesbitt. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He's yeah, he's done loads of stuff. I've, and I know he's had some some like drinking and drug problems. You oh, know, really? I I didn't know about that. I thought that was the case. I thought I had read that about him. But no, he's oh my god. You know, uh, both Jekyll and Murphy's Law in particular, I thought were great. He did a, a short three episode thing called Midnight Man, and that I thought was really good, where he was a journalist that. You know, stumbled into some sort of conspiracy. Yeah, uh, and didn't he do um, Sunday uh, something about Sunday yes. bloody? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And then the um, I remember that Cold Feet. That, yeah, could that's is another yeah, thing he did. I think that's the thing that really made him big was Cold Feet mm-hmm. and Sunday Bloody Sunday. But he he recently did uh, Babylon, which is the guys and it's the guys you made Peep Show and I think someone else. Have you seen Peep Show? Yes, I have seen Peep yeah. Show. I like yeah. Um, well, it's, it's them, but they're doing a kind of like semi, well, it's, it's, it's reasonably serious uh, show about like uh, cops in, in Britain. And he's, a, he's phenomenal in that, actually. That's cool. And it's a comedy. Well, no, not really. It's, it's, it's serious, but there's, there's kind of comedy for it. And you almost feel like those two are just so funny that, I don't you can't I, help but laugh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hear you, man. No, there are some actors like that. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Too funny, man. Well, this is great. There you go. We got it. <laughs> we gave a good list of uh, yeah shit to watch. Yeah. This is good. Man. And also, if uh, if you're a fan of, I was going to mention this. We talk about Black Mirror. Um, have you seen any of Charlie Brooker's other stuff? No, I haven't. Uh, tell me what other series he's done. He's done. He used because well, he used he he wrote a lot of columns, but he did this. Um, TV shows. Oh, was it Screen Burn? Was the column? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It's no Screen Wipe, and then News Screen Wipe. Yeah, okay. and then he did News Wipe as well, where it's all about kind of like TV and like it was like a like it was basically him sitting on his couch, and then like he'd be kind of like talking to the camera, and then he would like show clips, but really kind of analyzing TV and the news, and there's some really great stuff in it, and fucking funny as hell. Oh, I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's cool. And then he did, um, I've only seen a few episodes, but it's so funny. Ah, uh, a touch of cloth. A touch of cloth? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if, if, if you don't know, a touch of cloth is, um, I think it's, I assume it's a British term, but it's for uh, shitting yourself. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. fantastic. That's such a classy way of saying shitting I know. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I've, I've had a bit of touch of cloth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by all means. <laughs> Use my loop. Yeah. I will. Thank you. And basically, <laughs> basically what it is, as you can guess from the title, like, you know, um, it's a comedy. But it's all, it's imagine like, um, I guess stuff like Luther. Like, I haven't seen Luther yet. But like that kind of British kind of um, 
slightly gritty cop drama. Okay. Um, but imagine that, but written by the guys who wrote Airplane. I, <laughs> you know, Barney Miller, the American uh, cop show Barney Miller, was very much like the drudgery of police work and stuff, and it was just bizarre, funny circumstances. No, but I, no, but I mean but, with this, like they've gone for a um, police squad t- style, like... Oh, every, but that crazy, every, yeah, that, like that over the top. Every okay. every name is a pun. Every single line oh. is a joke. <laughs> but sh- okay. but shot in this very kind of like gray, serious way. Well, like you said, like yeah, like Naked Gunner, Airplane, ever or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Kind of like super deadpan, and he's in all the actors in it. Like I don't think any of them are comedians. Almost like was it Leslie Nielsen was like a serious actor before? He absolutely was before uh, Naked Gun and Airplane and all that exactly, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, and they kind of uh, they took that approach of getting very very good dramatic actors. Wow. And then and that's, <laughs> and that's... the stupidest stuff. And that's Touch of Cloth? Yeah, that's Touch of Cloth. All right. All right. Um, Very cool. I think Charlie Parker wow. wrote and directed that. I think he directed cool. it. He definitely wrote it, yeah. But that 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 didn't really get as much um like praise as it should have. But I think maybe Black Sh- Black Mirror overshadowed it a bit. But then when you- I'll look for it though. That sounds great, man. Because I love I love the thick of it. Oh yeah. Show. Great show and love Veep. I mean, you know, since then, uh, you know, yeah, Veep on yeah. HBO is amazing. I've only seen so, the first series of Veep, but I really love it. It keeps getting better. Yeah. It keeps getting better. And I think it's, that's such a, a it's such a smart move, not remaking Thick of It, doing a different version. Yeah, because I even saw In the Loop. Wasn't that what it was called? Yeah, before? yeah. That was that was really good. Gandolfini was in that as well, wasn't he? Yes, he was. That's right. He was the general. And yeah, so he was funny. The, I never, like, yep. I knew from The Sopranos, you know, like, where there was obviously humor, but like, Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, see him turn up in that, and oh, I can't remember the actress's name, but when they're sitting in the little girl's bedroom, adding up the numbers of deaths, there's going to be in the war. <laughs> like, oh, that's my God. Awesome. I mean, that's, that's uh, Amanda Inucci. It's just like a genius of uh, yes, comedy. Is. Like, uh, absolutely. I, I doubt you've. Oh, what's. There's, he had his own TV show called The Amanda Inucci Show. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. And it's like he's actually acting in it. You don't really see him acting that much. And that is, again, like almost completely unknown. Like people don't really know about it, but it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's like there's a slight Woody Allen-ness to him, but like... Oh, cool. But it's real kind of like surreal edge to it. It's like him just kind of wandering through life. And it's kind of like these skits, but like it's him as himself but kind of as himself throughout all of it but it's um it's really ridiculous like it won't make sense any of there's, there's i think the first sketch from the first episode is like this guy who's like uh he's putting together a uh a wardrobe and his wife's like saying are you sure you should be doing that he's like yeah it's fine and he like he nails his hand into the wardrobe <laughs> and he can't get it loose but he's he's too ashamed to tell his wife <laughs> so it's like the whole time he's just covering it up and he's just like yeah like say oh i'm just gonna spend a bit more time working on it and it's it's like this but it just keeps getting more and more ridiculous where he ends up getting um taken away in the skip to a landfill because he doesn't want to admit that he's like a, still attached to it <laughs> and then he gets there and like there's all there's like this group of like people who've all like attached themselves to stuff like, <laughs> like <laughs> Like I've, I haven't retold it that well, but like, it, but it started from these like really kind of like small 
premises like that we all can kind of like oh yeah i get that and then you just take it to these stupidly ridiculous conclusions that's cool no no i get it man that's that it sounds like that kind of like faulty tower is like i'll be damned if i you know any any fault yeah i mean not not a lot of it is that sort of um humor but like uh, but all kind of like these like it's not all that kind of like faulty towers like you know uh, bravado thing but it's all starting off from a small point and then just taking a surreal turn about halfway through but, um, okay. Well, I trust the guy. I mean, like I said, I love his, I love in the loop, and I love Veep and everything. Yeah, because guy Julia Louis Dreyfus, great on Seinfeld. They gave her a couple shows, and they ran for a while. I, I never really cared for him, and she finally found a new thing of her own, and I'm really happy that she, you know, because I was, you know, she clearly had comic chops. Yeah, but I think Veep really gives her that stage, and also just that entire cast. Is just great, and they are, and they are, you know, they keep finding other things for them to do as the story has progressed over the last three or four years. It's a, it's an amazing series. Yeah, I need to catch up on the rest of them. Yep, like very I said, cool. I was a bit skeptical at first, just because the thick of it was so good. Sure, um, but well, and always, and and also, frankly, because it happens on both coasts, uh, American or, or British uh, land. When 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 you, when an American idea is brought to Britain, it, and that doesn't always necessarily work. And the same vice versa. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, you know, for every for every successful Steptoe and Son to Sanford and Son, uh, which was a dramatically different than mm. you know a British original and stuff. You know, I, I Friends and Coupling. It's well, so I was, funny. I was just about to bring that up, actually. Yeah, carry on. Well, yeah, that's what I was gonna, you know, like Moffat took Friends, made it Coupling. It was great, and then some idiots like, well, let's do Coupling yeah, over yeah, here. Exactly. Like, you already did it. What is, what is wrong with you? And it sucked. It was horrible. And also, I got to be honest. I'm in the minority. I'm not a big Elementary fan. I like Johnny Lee Miller. Oh, do you know, I, have, um, I haven't seen it. Uh, well, it's it's okay. It's just it, I I think I'm too much of a traditionalist because it's like okay, it's Sherlock Holmes and Watson, but Watson is a woman. And I'm like, no, then it's not Sherlock Holmes. Fuck you. I see. sorry because that's you're missing the point. It's like you know Sherlock Holmes is this bromance between these two guys. Who need each other? I mean, that's the thing, you know. Gaddison. Do, do, they, and, do they have a romantic relationship? No, but and that's the thing. It's it's just it's bullshit. I'm sorry. I it's I, like from the, from the first. I'm just like shut up. I'm like it's you know they it just it doesn't matter. It's like it's so and also that they they really uh, point up that he's an addict. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love the way they handle it in, in Sherlock. Yeah, in terms of you know, well, the, it's there, but it's not the it's not the main thing about him. That's what I was gonna say because, like, I mean, the, the the fact for Watson's a woman, that's for me, that's neither here nor there. Like, that doesn't really bother me in any way. But um, I think for even though like the the Cumberbatch show, like it's had its ups and downs, it was when it's good, it's so so fucking good that yes. It seems weird that then you do one, especially now that like everything from England, America gets swapped over so frequently. Mm-hmm. It, it, I just I didn't see the point in doing Elementary so soon after. It was Elementary did come second, didn't it? Like definitely, it came second, yeah. and they it just because I think as they've uh, and, and I'm sure other countries are doing variations of Sherlock, yeah. but Moffat kind of has the control as the original creators say, no, you got to do it this way. And um, someone in, you know, I think somebody at CBS is like, you know, Sherlock Holmes is public domain. Yeah. We can do whatever <laughs> yeah. the hell we want. 
And it's like, never mind. And, then, yeah. and they created elementary and they did what they wanted to do. But that's, but that's what I mean. It's like you've, you've got Robert Downey Jr. doing it. Well, not probably not anymore, but like doing it in on the big mm-hmm. screen. And then you have yeah, the Guy Ritchie movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have Cumberbatch doing it on TV. It just seems like um, diluting the well, bringing out another version so soon afterwards. Like, yeah, what well, would even Wilder Cumberbatch one still being made? It just, yeah. Like, well, and in fairness, you know, Elementary is on its like fourth or fifth season, oh, wow. so somebody likes it. I know. I mean, and it's okay. No, I mean, like, I mean, like I said, I haven't seen it, so I can't. Um, I can't judge. I've, I've watched a handful. Yeah. It's a competent cop show, but it could. I'm like, you know, just change his name. Yeah, he make him the, you know, like the Mentalist. Or yeah. I mean, there's so many variations on the Holmes character, even even Lucifer right now. You know, I which I know I, is. I haven't seen that yet. Actually, it's good. I yeah? think it's good. Yeah, I like it. I re- I was I was pleasantly surprised. I'm friends with the showrunner, okay, and uh, and he's like, "Hey, I'm doing this," and I'm like, "Oh wow, I knew it was in production." And I'd seen the teaser in San Diego, and he and he got I got to see the pilot online before it aired, and it was like, "Oh, this is funny. This is really good." And I was so relieved because then I'm like, "Yes, please, yeah, you know, let's talk about it. This is good." So yeah, it's it's been very good. Four episodes in, and I have to say, I think it's a great show. Okay, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's different from in in the same way that iZombie works on TV versus the original comic working as well. Mm. And, you know, I mean, it's changed a little bit for TV, but but I don't think in any negative way. That's the thing, Mike Mike Carey's run, and who's amazing. Was, was was there one artist all the way? Because I haven't. I've I had a really weird thing with Lucifer where I read it. Um, I read it from copies I got from the library. So I missed out like three or four trades. No, no, maybe, okay. maybe not that many, maybe like two or three. But I've, I've read like from start to finish with like two or three missing in the middle. But, um, but that, I'm looking up to see who, uh, who might have. Did uh, Ryan Kelly do some of it? Am I? That's interesting. I'm not sure. Ryan Kelly from Local with uh, Brian mm-hmm. Wood. I might be misremembering. Uh, I'm looking for the comic to see who who did it with mike no i and i talked to mike yeah, yeah. what a what an amazing great writer mm. and no i love lucifer lucifer was an amazing yeah comic. but i almost feel like that was that was so good but so there's no way you could do that as a tv show what he was doing right yeah it's, it's the same as um they talk about doing a sandman film and yes i feel yes, like they, they need to do one they need to do one sandman story you know, they, like you, you couldn't do the totality of Sandman outside of a TV show. And even then, I think there's so much tonal difference that it would be hard to do. So I feel like a film could be amazing, but it'd have to just it would have to be so different from the comic. And that's the kind of way I feel about with Lucifer. Like, I don't like I don't know how much they've changed it, but I think it's a very good thing that they did change it. I agree with you. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, I mean. All right, Sam Keith did it origi- he did it originally with Gaiman, but all right, who did the uh who didn't who did it with Mike? Was it rotating artists? I'm not sure. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not sure if they did the same as with Sandman, where it was different people. Peter Gross, yes. Oh, okay, I couldn't yeah, remember yeah. Peter's last. Yeah, Peter was the primary artist. Yeah. So yes. Oh yeah, and he did uh, And Ryan did do, you're right. Oh, Ryan Kelly did. did do uh yeah, and John Muth. Wow, I didn't yeah. realize. And Xander Cannon, my buddy Xander. Yeah, some great, oh, some great artists on that. Like it always Colleen Doran, Mike Kaluta. Yeah, I totally forgot that Mike, that Ryan was doing it. Yeah, wow. 
Very cool, man. And um, have you read the new Lucifer series? I think it's only been like two. I haven't. No, and you know Joe uh, Henderson, the the showrunner, was telling me, and I know that's a uh, like three or four issues in. It's it's really cool. That's cool. And Lee Lee Garbett's artwork on it's fantastic. Like he he suits it so perfectly. Very cool. Yeah. Excellent. And it's nice to well, see. Dude. It's nice to see it come back. Agreed. No, and I and I'm glad. And then you know I I'm hoping the same will happen for I Zombie. Uh, Chris Robertson is a buddy that uh, wrote the original series with Mike Allred. Yeah. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, the popularity of iZombie will give them a chance to come back if they want to. Mm. So, but uh, Ali, this has been great. I, yeah. I appreciate it. I, we, I, we, I feel we, like towards the end, it kind of just descended into just me recommending. No, this is good though. <laughs> no, truly, honestly, man. Um, I really, I love when guests come on and do recommend things that they love because, Honestly, we're we're all you know looking for shit to read and watch, and um, you know I mean God damn I with Brubaker that's always what it de- devolves into, <laughs> and and truly you know Ed would get embarrassed as well, and it's like Ed, do you realize how many emails I get where like what was that book again that you and I were talking about you know or whatever? So no, this is great. Honestly, I appreciate it, and um, truly man, uh, nice going because I love the kitchen and Snowblind is great as well, and it's it's wrapping up one more issue. So people catch up on that from Boom uh, and pick up that trade, the Vertigo trade of, uh, of ki- the kitchen. Uh, great crime stories and uh, really looking forward to whatever you got coming up. And uh, you're, you're invited back if uh, you're willing to talk. And I expect a new list of uh, reads and uh, views to recommend as well. Yeah, of course, man. I'll come back anytime. Nice talk with Ollie Masters. Make sure you check out Snowblind and also that collected version of The Kitchen from Vertigo Comics. Let's uh, switch gears now and talk to Aubrey Citizen. Uh, very interesting guy, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to Aubrey. We had a great conversation, not only about his comic book work, but uh, it got very intriguing when he was talking about his podcasts, uh, both Straight Shoot and, of course, Scald. S-K-A-L-D, a very interesting storytelling narrative that I find incredibly intriguing, and I think you will as well. Let's uh, start things off, though, with Aubrey Citizen, and we talk about the IDW series, G.I. Joe versus Street Fighter, to start things off on Word Balloon. Aubrey Citizen, welcome to Word Balloon. Hey, John, thanks like, for having like, me, sir. You like how my voice like suddenly like goes down an octave when I'm like talking, you know? Yeah, man, you, 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 you flip the radio switch. I like it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's very, it's, no, it's it's, like, is it weird if I say sultry? I mean, we just we just. Oh, I'll take it. I'll, okay. no, I'll take sultry. It's all right. There's enough distance. It's, if you're in the same room, <laughs> I might itch away. But, but no, we're okay. This is good. Uh, no, man. Hey, it's a pleasure. I, uh, you know, as as we both told each other in emails, it's like, oh, you know, um, people people have said, oh, you got to do so and so show, and you were very nice and you invited me to your show, and and I got to be honest, it'd be like, yeah, but I don't watch wrestling every week at all. It's a big part. And I'd have it's a big nothing part to of say. My, it's a big part of my wrestling talk show, talking about wrestling. So yeah, it would yeah. it would have well, been difficult for you. Well, I I, I did offer. I'm, I'm putting it out there because I love talking about the history of wrestling and you know literally like uh, bad influence when I when Kaz and Chris Daniels I talk to them. I'm always interested in the guys who taught them. Too. Yeah, well that's the thing, and I'm like, no, tell me about like your teachers and the old timers you've met because I uh, I really got to know a lot of um, WWE guys back in the 90s because the sports station that I worked at was um, we would do a celebrity bowling thing and our PR people just got really tight with the WWF guys back in the 90s. Uh, So, you know, Hacksaw Jim and uh, 
really Bobby Heenan in particular oh, really wow. got to know him. That's Great amazing. guy. I'm super. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm super jealous right now. That guy's, <laughs> that guy's, that guy's not. So, oh man, we're gonna get, we're gonna go down the wrestling rabbit hole really quick. Oh no, we're no, this is fine. But no, truly, like one of the funniest, most naturally funny conversationalists I've ever he was met. Brilliant, and he was great at everything. So people know him primarily, you know, from his time on commentary with Gorilla Monsoon, or maybe yes. as a manager, but. That guy could do everything. That guy could yeah. and did do absolutely everything. I mean, even when it came to working matches, he was a better wrestler than a lot of the wrestlers were because he trained to be a wrestler. And that's why, like, you know, when the end of the feud, when they forced him into the weasel suit or whatever, why that resonated so much because he was, he got it. He got every aspect no, of it. Exactly. Exactly. No, and he told me that he had like nerve damage or something that happened in Japan. At least that's what he said. I believe it. That's how. They work, they work stiff over there, especially in those days, man. So, yeah. No, and that's the thing. And, I mean, God, before he passed away, I loved hearing Roddy Piper talk about the old days. And, I mean, seriously, I mean, because I grew up in Chicago. We had uh, our, our local promoter was Bob Luce. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I watched it as a little kid. And I watched it through my college years. And that's kind of when I checked out. And occasionally I've got friends who watch it all the time. And it's like, all right. You know, I'm like, uh, you know, whatever. Who's the incredibly pale guy? Oh, that's Seamus. I'm like, all right. Man, that's like the whitest guy. I've, I mean, you know, they used to make fun of Larry Bird being white. This guy's whiter guy's, than Larry guy's Bird. white and orange. Those are his colors. Yeah, he was at New York Comic Con like back in 12 or 13. I forget what He's year. He's a big boy, man. You can't miss him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, you know, no. And, and honestly – the whole, I mean, God, you know, McMahon really is this pioneer when it comes to pay-per-view. And um, I covered boxing for a long time. And he even uh, did the one uh, boxing promotion with Sugar Ray Leonard and Donnie Lalonde. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he's had his fingers all over. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's there's, there's a long history of wrestling and boxing connection. In fact, uh, McMahon's grandfather was primarily a boxing promoter in yep. New York City, you know. And, a boy, very good. Yep. It was his yep. son, it was his son um, Vincent Jay McMahon, right? Uh, Vince's father, uh, who kind of sort of started steering him in more of the wrestling direction. But sure. yeah, dude, there's a long, 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 long history. They used to do both. No, absolutely. And also um, just this new uh, digital channel that the WWE is doing. I'm like, that's fascinating. It's been a couple years now. It's not even new anymore. They were, yeah, that's true. They were, the first, they were been... practically the first, if not the first, they were very close to the first you know, content producer company to really uh, go all in with like the over the top network idea. And it's, and, and now again, because I cover boxing, there's a boxing promoter that the premier boxing championship guys that do, uh, the NBC sports channel fights and showtime fights and stuff. Uh, Al Heyman is his name. He is considering creating a yeah, digital UFC channel. already did. UFC is already there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So crazy, man. Very cool. Well, we're also here to talk about uh, street fighter versus GI Joe. Of course. Uh, comes out to, so we're talking we're talking on Tuesday. Uh, comes out tomorrow, February twenty fourth. Very very excited about it. It's from IDW. Uh, it's me writing, uh, and then Emilio Leso, who you might uh, recognize uh, his work from Hack Slash, uh, Hack Slash Sam Hain, I believe. Uh, and uh, I love it. I'm super I'm super happy with it. You know, it's I'm glad we started off talking about wrestling a little bit because it's a very wrestling influenced book. Sure, uh, it's a ma- it's it's a fighting book. It's a book about a tournament, and there's ob- the, that's one of the reasons why. What the hell? Let's exactly, talk about fighting. Exactly. You know, it's it's King of the Ring. If you're a wrestling fan, yes. uh, I feel like if yes. you're not a wrestling fan, we might have already lost you at this point. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, if you're a wrestling fan, it's King of the Ring. If you're not a wrestling fan, you know, it's a single elimination tournament. It's it's March Madness. It's Sweet 16. It's, you know, uh, they lose once and they're knocked out and we're going to end up with one winner at the end of it. And, you know, the intent is, you know, it's by the second page, we are hip deep in fighting. And the intent there, <laughs> the intent there was, I mean, and that's intentional because to my eye, what's best about both those franchises and what people like about those franchises, it's not – you know, it's not Guile saying goodbye to his wife and going and getting on a plane and head to the tournament and captions exploring his feelings. No, it's the fighting. It's these it's these these awesome, colorful characters fighting each other. And, you know, if you're a fan of professional wrestling or even if you're, you know, just kind of adjacent to it and know about it, uh, you're probably aware of the fact that these guys are storytellers, professional wrestlers, and their medium is fighting. You know, it's very much like a kung fu fight in a martial arts movie mm-hmm. or something, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the intent here and I couldn't have a better partner in crime than Emilio. Uh, the intent here is to really use the fights themselves to uh, establish and tell a smaller story for each fight, but also use the fights to kind of drive a larger narrative that's going to uh, become clearer as we move through the tournament. Well, and I've always heard, too, uh, writers talk about comic book fights and say – uh, the difference is the dialogue that happens uh, either during the fight or before the fight. That's what makes a difference. We've seen Spider-Man fight, you know, Doctor Octopus a million times. It's the dialogue that does make it a different fight this time. I think. So, I think in a lot of cases that's true. Um, I think it's unfortunately true, though. I mean, I think, and this is kind of a weakness in a lot of uh, comic book fight scenes, right? And not all of them, certainly, right? I think there are people out there doing amazing work when it comes to doing. Um, fight scenes. One of my favorite, Robert Kirkman and um, uh, Ryan, uh, Robert Kirkman and Ryan Otley on Invincible do some of the best comic book fight scenes of all time, right? And I think that you know the the dialogue is great. It's very it's a cool, useful tool. Um, and in Street Fighter GI Joe, we try and we use it this, the way that um, the way that you might use a wrestling promo, right? In between, like before or after, in between matches or something. Uh, but the only difference is we get to use it during the match. Right. Right. Uh, which right. is which is nice. But, you know, I, I think that there's uh, I, I think that the point of view that goes, oh, well, you know, it's just, you know, it's it's the dialogue that makes the fight, the fight in comics stand out or makes it different. I think that that's kind of a limiting approach, frankly. You know, and I think that that's why a lot of comic book fight scenes feel so they feel so samey because people go into it thinking that. And it's really just uh, unfortunately, a lot of these fights just amount to heroes taking turns punching each other until one punches hard enough that they win but up but up that's it rim shot right it's over uh and i think that if you watch professional wrestling if you watch a good professional wrestling match if you watch a good kung fu movie fights can be and should be a lot more than that they should be storytelling sure. tools in and of themselves you know whether it's the 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 villainous heel cheating to try and get a win over the plucky underdog baby face or any of a million other stories there are a lot of there are a lot of things you can do to make fights uh, in and of themselves, interesting, even outside of the dialogue going on in them, and that's what we're trying, that's what we're trying to do with Street Fighter GI Joe. Well, and uh, you know, I know Jackie Chan obviously is a great example of that, and a guy that's very inventive on how he presents a fight. It's a, it's a two handed thing though, because certainly you can come up with ideas. You got to have an, an artist that is willing to go there and also maybe create on his own as well. How much, how much is your artist uh, helping you in terms of choreo- uh, you know, choreographing and suggesting a ton different I mean, like sorts this, of fights? It, it wouldn't work if, um, if I, if we, if I wasn't working with a guy as imminently qualified and amazingly talented as Emilio, um, I, I'm sorry, did I lose you? No, okay. I'm still here. My, uh, my, I, I'm, 
I knocked my computer. I'm getting, I'm getting really excited. I get really excited, John. I gesticulating. That's all right. I, all these great things. Uh, I do the same thing, so, man. I, I whip my hands around. Go ahead. Uh, Emilio, Emilio is fantastic, right? Uh, I, um, I talked to him really, really early on, and I said, listen, man, I, I'm a nutcase, right? I'm going to be spending a ton of time on YouTube watching, like, uh, Street Fighter uh, videos of, like, um, Street Fighter matches, you know, tournaments and, uh, like, some of the top-ranked players and stuff like that. And I'm going to be watching how these characters used and what their different moves are as well as, you know, kind of researching on the G.I. Joe side of, you know, well, what – what kind of fighting would the Baroness do, right? And I had to make some kind of executive decisions in that regard. And I told him, uh-huh. I said, listen, I can send you any amount of reference that you want. I don't want to micromanage you, uh, but I also don't want to leave you feeling confused about a specific type of kick that I'm describing, right? Uh, and he said, please, reference, send it to me. Um, and so I sent that guy an enormous, an enormous, a, a comical amount of reference for every panel. Almost there's a there's an image, there's a YouTube video that's time stamped. There's something. Um, and then what Emilio did, and this is what's so crucial. Um, Emilio would Emilio would take a kick, right? That I'm like a savat kick or whatever it is that I'm describing, uh, and then he, through his mastery of character acting and uh, facial expressions, he was able to take that and actually give it imbue it with the meaning required to actually make the fight make sense, right? Because again, we we're trying to do something beyond just people taking turns hitting each other. There needs to be a reason, not only why people are fighting, but why they're using the specific moves that they are at any given time. And this is this is important in wrestling, and it's important in kung fu uh, movies, but it's even more important in comics because unlike wrestling and kung fu movies, where so much of the appeal is the motion and the beauty of this movement and these, these kind of violent scenes and the, um, the aesthetic pleasure that you get out of that in comics, there is no motion, obviously. Uh, and right. so we have to pick the exact right moments all the sure. time. You know, you, you can't, you can't have a wasted moment. Everything, every, um, every, every way, like every limb, every facial expression needs to be in the exact right place. And that's what Emilio is so amazing. I feel so fortunate, um, to be working with him on this book. Did you come up with the roster yourself? How much was it all yours? How much was it IDW saying or suggesting we'd like to see these characters? I mean, obviously, you mentioned the Baroness. Certainly, Snake Eyes is obviously going to be in there. Um, you know, I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, like how much how much of it was your own? How much did you involve Emilio? There was a, there was a little bit of back and forth. So uh, we were pitching this. We were pitching this and, you know, OK, so first of all. Uh, there are two yeah, licensors. Go to the beginning. There are two licensors on True. This. Yeah, okay, yeah, Which that's fine. Yeah, Street Fighter and I mean, G.I. Joe. Uh, yeah, so who came to who first? Uh, so the way I understand it, uh, Capcom, uh, who normally does books with Udon and still does. I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, does this mean the you know, the, the Udon relationship? I, I have no idea and I can't speak to that. I know that the, as far as I know, they still are, right? Okay. Um, this is not them leaving Udon or anything like that. Uh, but they wanted to do a G.I. Joe crossover. And that's why they came to IDW. They, Capcom came to them specifically wanting that because they've seen uh, the amazing job that IDW has done. Oh, yeah. On oh, my all God. The yeah. You know, the Transformers G.I. Joe is one of my favorite books because it's psychotic, right? Uh, <laughs> it's nuts. Uh, but So nuts that they're talking about making the movie. Exactly, so, yeah. So know. I, um, so first of all, we had to deal with two licensors, which scared me at the beginning, right? Because I'd heard horror stories about uh, working with sure. one licensor, much less two. I got to say, though, these these guys have been great. Uh, and I think a big part of it is that, you know, I I came up with the initial 
roster myself, you know, the initial tournament brackets. And uh-huh. uh, there was a little bit of back and forth. Uh, there's a little, you know, a few suggestions about like, oh, you know, maybe you could try and fit this character in. Right. Uh, or just I mean, like one or two characters, I think, is the only thing that we ended up changing. And I think a big part of that is due to the fact that uh, I'm a fan of these things. I love Street Fighter. I love G.I. Joe. So obviously I'm going to want to get Snake Eyes and Chun-Li and Ryu and uh, Roadblock and like all the all the obvious characters. I'm going to want to get them in there. Uh, but on the other side of things, I, I didn't want it to just be a nostalgia fest. Um, and I thought that, that was, it was a really important thing to avoid because a lot of the times when people do licensed comics or, you know, these kind of like very fan service, call a spade a spade. It's fan service, right? Sure. Um, when people do this stuff, it becomes very much just a love letter to what they remember and love from these mm-hmm. franchises, right? And so I didn't want to – I didn't want to make this such a love letter to like late 80s, early 90s versions of Street Fighter and G.I. <laughs> Joe. Uh, so I yeah. made a special effort, especially with Street Fighter, uh, to – include more recent characters uh, and at the time when we started working on it uh they hadn't even officially announced street fighter 5 yet so uh unfortunately i couldn't put in any of the brand spanking new street fighter 5 characters uh but i did include uh i think three characters from street fighter 4 uh, rufus hakan and crimson viper and that was intentional because even though those aren't the street fighter characters that i grew up with those are the street fighter characters that people are growing up with right now and i think sure. and i think that um you know that combined with kind of you know also play into the fan favorites uh there really wasn't a whole lot of back and forth from the licensors about who actually made it into the tournament okay and now you know you mentioned crimson viper right off the bat uh in issue one uh she's there yeah absolutely she's in the first fight against snake eyes yeah against snake eyes exactly yeah very cool too funny um is uh what else can i ask about this that you know i'm, I'm trying to think beyond the obvious and stuff um john barber's your idw guy uh, so John Barber, John Barber's you, the guy who brought me in initially, but I've actually been working. Um, I've been working with this on with. I've been working on this with Carlos Guzman, who is amazing. Oh, very nice. He's sure. really, really great. Okay, very cool. That's cool. Did um, in in uh, doing this, there's a lot of dialogue. I should, I, I and that's a good thing because I was kind of concerned that, given that it is fighting, that there wouldn't be. But as you've been saying in everything, no, it's it is part of it is part of the fight. And it does kind of, you know, let, you know, allow and make, you know, make sense of the fight and everything. Having having the two married together, and again, it isn't just a bunch of pinups. Of course. Um, the fun thing for me for Street Fighters always was, and I got to, I got to admit, I stopped playing a long time ago. But my friends who still play, it's always the cheat codes and always <laughs> these incredibly graphic <laughs> solutions to to battles. I'm guessing you can't go that far. Uh, well, no, I mean, like, I, I think every everybody's. The moves that people are doing in the in the comic, they're moves that exist in the game. Absolutely. You know, like sure. and this is and I mentioned it earlier, but I, I, I can't overstate how much time I've spent watching and rewatching and thinking about and then rewatching again, you know, the move set for Crimson Viper. You know, so I, I not only watched matches with Crimson Viper to see how people play her and like how how she approaches fights. Cause I, I, that's another thing I went into this and this is something I don't see done a whole lot. And since this comic is all fights, I wanted to make sure that I explored all of the intricacies of what a good fight scene can be. And for me, that means recognizing the fact that, you know, in this very first fight, snake eyes and crimson viper, they don't fight the same way. They don't right. They don't go about a match um, in the identical manner because they have different skill sets and they have different sure. techniques and different training and background. Uh, and so to that end, I watched 
again, so much tape, right? So, so much tape. Uh, and some of the things I spent the most time on or with were the move lists videos, right? Where it's just a straight run through of every single move that Crimson Viper can do in the game. Uh, and I tried to use as many of those as possible. There are a few times when like I really needed a specific punch or knee or throw or something like that. Uh, and uh, there are a couple times, like two, maybe three times when I had a Street Fighter character use a move that isn't in their actual move list. Uh, but for the rest of it, uh, it's going to be a fun Easter, fun Easter egg hunt for Street Fighter fans uh, because all of the moves in here is outlandish as they might seem, as, seem, especially from a guy like Hakan, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's a Street Fighter 4 character and he is a massive Turkish gentleman uh, who covers himself in oil to do Turkish oil wrestling. So he's very slippery. And he has he has a ludicrous move list. And his his special moves are just absurd. Uh, and all this but all the stuff he does in the comic is ridiculous as it all seems. That's stuff from the video game. It's in there for a reason. So yeah, man, we're I'm absolutely trying to embrace um the absurdity and the kind of bombastic nature and visuals of street fighter because it's such a big part of that franchise and i think that's one of the most fun things about it is when you get these matchups when you have a very very um ridiculous character like hakan who in the first issue faces off against roadblock and roadblocks just a big he's a big badass right he's a big badass who carries a machine gun (laughs) around right so like the juxtaposition between those two i think is one of the more exciting things to explore with street fighter gi joe well, and you also have a, a couple of Cobra Command there. You've got uh, Destro, and you've got the Baroness, obviously. Of course. Now, on the G, on the GI Joe and and Cobra Command side, is there a, and you know, forgive me because again, this shows you my my uh, lack of knowledge. Is there enough of an established fighting style? You mentioned Roblox, certainly. We know Snake Eyes' ability and stuff, but then when you do get into some of the other, you know, eighty eight Joes that that are out yeah. there, I, I'm not sure of everyone's fighting style. How much of that is documented and how much of that you are you kind of, you know, getting licensed to kind of give them a, a specific style? It depends. You know, where there is evidence of something, I, I use it. For instance, Gung Ho, uh, who is one of my favorite G.I. Joes. Um I mean here's something else this is just an aside, but uh something that I've kind of discovered in talking with people about this. I thought it was just me. Uh, I always kind of was like, I don't know. I always thought that I was somehow a bad GI Joe fan because like I wasn't in love with the obvious biggest name characters. I was in love with the characters that I had the toys for when I was a kid. Sure. Right. Sure. <laughs> Cause I didn't have all of them, but the ones I had, those were my favorite. And amongst those, I had ones that were my extra favorite. And one of those was gung ho because that guy has a rad hat <laughs> And a mustache and a big old tattoo on his bare chest that he runs around with. <laughs> he looks like a he looks like a Tom of Finland drawing. It's amazing. Uh, but so Gung Ho, for instance, that guy has a documented history of being a bare knuckle brawler and knife fighter. That's that's who he is. So for him, it was easy. You know, that guy's going to come into a match and he's going to hold himself like a boxer and he's going to do primarily punches. And this is how he's going to fight. He's not going to be doing kicks and throws and, you know, weird submissions and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, ditto like Crocmaster. Crocmaster, another one of my favorites because he has crocodiles, obviously. Uh, he he was an alligator wrestler. So this guy is going to be using his strength and just trying to grab you and ground you, right? Maybe ground and pound a little bit. Uh, other characters, you're right. It was a little bit more difficult. Uh, the Baroness is a great example of this, right? Because she 
she's not primarily you know her value to Cobra isn't necessarily her hand to hand combat skills. You know, that's not to say she's a slouch in that department. Uh, but you know, she's the intelligence officer. She's the femme right. fatale. You know, right? Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about characters like her. Um, Roadblock was another one because again, he's primarily a an artillery guy, right? Uh, and for bareness, I sort of sat down and thought, about, okay, so she's not the biggest, she's not the strongest, um, she's kind of amoral and um, very pragmatic, and will do whatever she needs to get ahead. What fighting style would that be? Krav Maga, right? Like, I mean, and so uh, some of it was just uh, me kind of making arbitrary distinction or uh, decisions, uh, but it's all grounded in stuff, right? Uh, the bareness, she has like kind of this commando background, and um, she's very pragmatic and. Uh, she'll do whatever she, whatever it takes to win a fight. So uh, a martial art like Krav Maga, where it's not really about established forms um, or techniques as it is just about what works and how to put your opponent down immediately, that's what I went with. Okay. Now how many issues is this going to go? Six issues. Six issues. Okay. And it's – Sixteen? Is it a tournament of eight or it's, uh, it's eight, eight bouts or uh, yeah? So it's a it's it's sixteen it's sixteen combatants that we're starting. Oh, with. okay, yes, sir. Crazy. Um, no, this is <laughs> very interesting, and I and no, I uh, I give you credit. I think uh, obviously, I think fans of both uh, franchises are going to be very excited by this. It's so something. That's... It's something different, you know. Like it's it's not. Yeah. No, I give you credit for that. Absolutely, it's... man. I mean, this is like you say, it's an action first comic. That needs dialogue, and I, you know, it's like I said, I think you you deliver. So Thanks, I mean, man. you know, I mean, and there's not no. to say there's not story in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, I, I don't want to give that impression that it is. It is. Uh, it's just sure. fights, but fights when done well have a lot of story in them, and that's and that's what these are. You know, and so the dialogue is. You know, there's some pithy one liners. I'd be lying if I said that there weren't. Uh, but there's also there's also a lot of world building and uh, establishing of character and things like that. Uh, through the dialogue and also through the fights themselves. I think that, you know, even if you aren't familiar with these characters, if you come in and you watch a Rufus match, uh, Rufus, who is the big, corpulent, American, self-taught kung fu master who's extremely arrogant uh, and is, you know, maybe overconfident in his abilities. uh, When you see him fight and you see the way that he holds himself and comports himself in a match, you're going to learn a lot about that character and who he is and where he comes from. Uh, And I think you're going to learn more than if, you know, we had had two or three pages of talking heads of him and his girlfriend, Candy, you know? Absolutely. Now, I know you primarily as an editor, and you mentioned Kirkman and Otley and stuff. You did a lot of editing for Kirkman over the years, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, uh, so I, I, I met Robert initially when I was editing at Marvel, uh, and I edited him on Marvel Team-Up and Irredeemable Ant-Man. And so when I left WWE, to, or I'm sorry, when I left Marvel to go to WWE, uh, where I worked on WWE.com, uh, Robert hired me to edit uh, his work freelance. So this was pre-Skybound. Um, I was working yeah. on Invincible, Walking Dead, and Astounding Wolfman at the time. And then I also ended up editing uh, Kick-Ass um, for Mark Miller and uh, also the um, the Collider books that Mark Guggenheim did at uh, Image. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. That's great. I uh, No, I'm a, fa- I'm a fan of all that stuff. So – um, did you, and, and what were you just column writing at WWE? Do you still do that? No. So at WWE, I was a, I think the official term was web producer or multimedia producer. Uh, it's been a few okay. years now. Uh, but no, so I, I initially went there, uh, because I was at Marvel and I was a big WWE fan and you know, my goal in working with Marvel was all working at Marvel as an editor was always to write, you know, and, and I 
I figured correctly, as it turned out, that you know the best way to learn how to write a comic is to have a job where you oversee every stage of production. You know, uh, so I learned an immense amount at Marvel. I was really fortunate to do that, uh, and I kind of you know wanted to do something else. I, I've been really fortunate. I've had a bunch of dream jobs uh, that people have, and so I was able to go to WWE and uh, I wrote columns. I wrote match. Match results and previews and special features and uh, oversaw sections of the site and stuff like that. Uh, and then kind of did the complicated thing on the side for a while. Very cool. And um, and now, you know, and you're doing a, you're doing your wrestling podcast as well. I do now. Yes, sir. Uh, so I do. Uh, we mentioned it earlier. I don't know if I said the name, but it's called Straight Shoot. Uh, everything, everything I talk about is at AubreySitterson.com. It's just the easiest place to send people. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, no, I do straight shoot now. And it's, um, it started off primarily as a post show, right? So as soon as Raw, Raw or pay-per-views would go off the air, I would have special guests, um, wrestlers, you know, top indie guys, Roderick Strong, Adam Cole, Tommaso Ciampa, guys like that, uh, as well as kind of famous fans, right? Uh, Andy Williams from Every Time I Die, Alex Levine from Gaslight Anthem, Ron Funches, the Lucas Brothers, uh, anybody who I thought would have an interesting take on professional wrestling, including comics people, uh, Jason Aaron, Dennis Hopeless, um, editors, uh, John Moisen, who's at Skybound now, has come on a bunch. Um, and so it started as just talking about the shows immediately after they went off the air. Um, I eventually kind of transitioned away from that because depending on how raw was each week, you know, you could either end up with a lot to talk about or not really much anything to talk about. Sure. Uh, these days I do, uh, I do post pay-per-view shows. Uh, this past weekend I had Joey Ryan on, which is actually great timing because that guy was trending for the second time in a few months. Cause he, so he was the guy, do you know who Joey Ryan is? No, tell me. Joey Ryan, uh, do you remember, uh, late last year, I believe it was, uh, there was, it was big news and like, it was just trending everywhere and everybody's sharing the video of the guy, um, the, hairy chested mustachioed wrestler who went a uh he was wrestling a japanese guy and he um went to like punch him in the groin and joey this hairy mustachioed guy flexed and like the guy sold it right and like so it was like his, his dick based offense basically and it and it got a ton <laughs> of traction online so he trended for that and it was a big deal it was like one of those things where like everybody who i've ever known who knows that I have any kind of wrestling fandom was sending me that thing for months. Uh, and then he trended again this weekend because he was having a match against his girlfriend, uh, Laura Claire James, who's also a wrestler. He does a lot of intergender matches. Uh, and he proposed to her in the middle of the match. And then after she said yes, he rolled her up and won the match too. So it was a win-win situation <laughs> for Joey. Uh, but no, he was on along with Sammy Callahan, who WWE fans might uh, know as Solomon Crow from his time in NXT. And now he's back on the Indies, just tearing it up everywhere. P- PWG, CZW, uh, absolutely everywhere. Uh, but no, so I do um, – I typically have wrestlers on after the pay-per-views because we get really in-depth with the matches and talking about sure. the storytelling and what worked and what didn't and what we liked about it. Uh, and then the weekly show is now on Thursdays and we cover everything. Now and uh, we always cover WWE because it's the world's biggest and that's where sure. that's sure. that's what everybody wants to hear about. Uh, but depending on what's going on in the world of wrestling, we'll cover New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor, Evolve, Chikara, CZW, Lucha Underground, uh, and we also do retro stuff because uh, we talked about earlier about the WWE Network has a ton of archival footage. Right. Um, this week, sure. I'm really excited because we're talking about one of my favorites, which is Mid South Wrestling. It's a uh, it's it's an episode from 1980. Four, I think, uh, and it's just all these big, crusty, beefy dudes right. beating the hell Absolutely. out of each other. And I'm yes. super excited about it. 
<laughs> See, that's the thing, man. I mean, that was my early college years. And in high school, it was WWF and what was Flair's uh, – what was Flair's? Oh, uh, uh, down the, well, it depends on the it depends on the year. It might have been NWA, yeah. and then it was uh, JCP, Jim Crockett Promotions, and then it turned into WCW. Okay, right. Well, I guess it was the NWA years. Um, yeah, I mean that that's and and then we would get like on cable, especially early cable. You would get things like what was it called? Mid South. Mid South. Yeah, with Cowboy Bill Watts booking it. Sure. Pencil. Well, and honestly, that's what uh, when I was describing Chicago and stuff, and Bob Luce. That's exactly what that stuff was. Haystacks Calhoun and uh, Jimmy Superfly Snooka. And I mean, you know, there's a when uh, we were talking about conventions and you were saying that you you never come to Chicago, you got to come downtown because Miller's Pub is this great downtown, unassuming restaurant bar. And they've got like legitimately old celebrity photographs, especially. Sports photographs, because this was a, a real sports bar. This wasn't the creation that came in the 70s and 80s, and let's put memorabilia that really didn't belong there and stuff. This was like literally going back to the 40s, a real sports bar. And it was a real big wrestler hangout. I believe it. And, um, and it was great. And they've got, it always has they, been. Oh, yeah. And they've got autographed pictures of the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser oh, and, nice. you know, some of the, yeah, some of the, you know, Yukon Moose Cholak and all these like Midwest like, wrestling heroes and stuff and the same goes with boxing and baseball and football and uh no for the longest time in fact when uh my father had a restaurant down the street and uh, it was just a a commuter restaurant so it would close by eight o'clock at night and we'd wrap up and he'd be like let's go to the millers and see if any of the wrestlers are hanging out and every now and then there'd be a wrestler there and stuff it you was sold fantastic me. i'm gonna come to chicago i'm gonna do it <laughs> i'm telling you you man. sold me you 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 get so, your kickback from the chicago tourism board this week <laughs> <laughs> No, that's great. Well, and also it was interesting that you mentioned everything but TNA. Is TNA no longer? Oh, no. Uh... TNA. We talk about TNA too. Uh... Okay. <laughs> uh... I was wondering. Seriously, you like went through everybody and I'm like – I know. Uh, you know. My audience doesn't really like TNA that much. Uh, they, that's hilarious. They give them a hard Why? time. Also, t- truth be told, uh, TNA is now – it's now on pop TV and not a lot of people get that channel. Um, oh, that's crazy. I, I yeah, have pop and, on uh, – And unlike on, uh, Ring of Honor, you know, so Ring of Honor, um, it's on yes. Comet I think now. Like and nobody gets that either. But Ring of Honor, I know puts, that channel, exactly. Ring of Honor puts their stuff on rohwrestling.com, so everybody can watch it. Like TNA, okay. if you don't have pop, and a lot of major markets don't have pop, there's no legal way to watch that show. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a bummer. wow. I didn't, well, and that's what I was wondering is um, where are all the. Uh, not WWE federations and stuff, and you just told us that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, some of some of them have their own networks. New, New Japan Pro Wrestling has their own, you know, WWE esque network that I subscribe to, and it's amazing. Um, and okay. other show, other promotions work primarily on iPay per view or DVD sales. Um, and sometimes we'll cover smaller promotions. Uh, it, it'll be stuff that I haven't even seen, but you know, a person I know will have gone, and I'll have them check in and kind of tell us oh, all sure. about it. No, I you know I mean, and I know that uh, Kaz and uh, and Chris Daniels, uh, bad influence and stuff. Occasionally, they'll do solo matches independently and stuff. And yeah, it was just it was it's been interesting watching their post TNA career. Yeah, they've done really well for themselves. I mean, it's because they're really smart, talented dudes. It's yeah, not, they're funny guys. Like, that's like, there's no there's no real secret to it. Those guys are just really good at their jobs. Yeah, they're good performers. Absolutely, man. No, that's great. Well, and that's why I'm glad to hear too that because um, I wasn't sure. You know, we were going back and forth in terms of. 
you know, possibly me coming out. And I'm like, you know, I don't really watch it. And I guess I would have, you know, probably been more like, uh, you know, yeah, if I, if I, if I were, if I had the time to watch one and stuff, it sounds like you guys are, you aren't like hanging on the soap opera. Well, you guys are fans, obviously. Of course. And you're watching the soap opera and having a, having fun, but you're also pointing out like, okay, that didn't really work. And I don't know why they're still probably going with the scenario, but they're still doing yeah, it. Yeah. You know, like, stuff I, like that. the general MO uh, with straight shoot is always what works and why. Right. I, I think it's really easy. And this is true of not just wrestling fandom, but con- comic book fandom and oh, any pop culture, anything, absolutely. you know, it's so easy to nitpick and say, wow, this yeah, sure, sucks and that didn't yep. work. And I hate this. And, you know, I, they don't know what they're doing and I could do a better job than they could. Uh, God, that's yeah, really, yeah. really easy. And also, I think not very enlightening. I don't think you really learn much of anything, <laughs> right? By just picking things apart. I think it's actually yep. a lot more difficult I and mean, it's more difficult, which is why more people don't do it. But I know that I personally learn a lot more, especially when I can have wrestlers on and I can say, hey, man, uh, I thought this was really good. What did you think about it? And why was this good? Like, why did why was this so effective? Why did this match hit me in such, you know, in such a powerful way? Uh, and I, I think you learn a, you, you can learn a lot more from how to do things well than you can from picking out things that are like picking on things that are done poorly. I think I understand no, that's smart. And also, again, you're going to the source and you're talking to the performers and I'm assuming, you know, and again, the reporters that are covering it enough that can explain why something works or even if you do want to talk about something that doesn't work. Because you're right. It it always drives me crazy when a lot of pop culture podcasts or videos uh, don't understand and, and don't bother to find out the real answer. Right. You know, I mean, God, and I'm sure you, you know, you can appreciate this as well when, you know, like when, um, when Young Justice was pulled off of uh, Cartoon Network or even a better example, the Green Lantern cartoon. Mm-hmm. And I remember show, you know, shows going, I don't understand. It's great. And it's like, yeah, but they're not selling toys. Well, but they've got a great adult audience. Yeah, but they don't want an adult for. audience. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's, it's okay to be mad, but. Find out why. Yeah, of course. You know, you gotta, it's <laughs> because nice. there is an answer, and it's actually an interesting answer. And that's what we always try to do. We always try and kind of take the, the the broader look at things, you know, and kind of understanding the the context that these things exist in, instead of just you know being upset that Roman Reigns won or whatever, you know. Sure. So back to your comic writing. Are you um what let like what have you written leading up to this? I didn't do your com- I shame on me. I did not do my uh, due diligence. So uh the the, the biggest thing uh, that I've done prior to this uh, is a graphic novel called Worth, um, which was done uh, with the Roddenberry folks, right? So Gene Rod. Oh, cool. Yeah. So sure. Is this Rod's? Is this uh, the son? This Rod? is Rod Rodden but Rod Roddenberry's company. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, Roddenberry. So they. Um, so for people who don't know, uh, Gene Roddenberry, of course, is the creator of Star Trek. Uh, Rod Roddenberry is his son, uh, and they have a production company. They do comics and short films and uh, all kinds of stuff. And um, they came to me and Chris Moreno, uh, who's a tremendous artist. I love Chris. Absolutely, he's great. And um, and we did this graphic novel worth uh, a couple years ago. It was through them and Arcana is who published. It was like a joint production, right? Okay. Uh, that, that's the largest thing that I've done. Uh, but you to- you toil in obscurity for a while, you know? And so I had done short stories at Marvel and Image and DC and Oni. And uh, I'd done kids' books at Viz. Uh, I did some Redekai volumes. Uh, I've done stuff all over, right? Uh, and you kind of keep doing it and you keep grinding and hustling until you find the right thing. And that's what Street Fighter G.I. Joe is. Uh, Street Fighter that's G.I. Cool. Joe is my biggest uh, and, frankly, best work to date uh and it's also kind of you know if, if 
it's not evident from the conversation we've had leading up to this. Uh, it's the exact right thing for me to be working on. It's all on my – Okay. You know, if there was a if there was if there was a heavy metal soundtrack and I don't know, like a barbarian in it also, it would be all of my interests. It would be everything I love, right? <laughs> I did hear that you were a heavy metal guy. I am That's a heavy cool. metal guy. Yeah. Oh, oh hey, can That's I- another reason by the way to talk to uh, Patrick Brower of Challengers. Oh, is he a metal at, guy at too? Point. Oh yeah, massively so. best friends. I got to reach out to that See? guy. See? I'm telling you, man. <laughs> uh Hey, can I plug something else? Do you mind? Of course. Uh, Scald. I do this. I do this. So Street Shoot is uh, my most popular podcast, and it's a professional wrestling thing. I also do this other podcast. It's called Scald. S K A L D. It's weird. It's a very strange thing. It's a it's an ongoing sword and sorcery serial podcast. That's fantastic. It's like an original drama that's sword and sorcery. Exactly. I mean, but it's not, you know, it's not a radio serial. And there are a lot of those online where it's like okay. it's different actors and voices so. and sound effects and stuff like that. It's not that. Uh, I write a new episode every week. Um, it's a, and uh, I, write, I write it and then I record it myself, just me, just oral storytelling in one take. And they're between like 30 and 45 minutes long. It's psychotic. So it's crazy. Are you like, I tell people are it's you like, like Lothar of the Hill, Hill people telling your tales or what are you doing? Uh, wait, say again. Uh, do you know? Do you remember from Saturday Night Live? Uh, it was it was the the sword and sorcerer. Well, it wasn't sword and sorcerer. It was more barbarian talk show. Lothar of the Hill people. Oh yeah, I've seen I've seen clips of it. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not quite like Lothar of the Hill people. I tell people it's it's like Conan the Barbarian as told by the Ultimate Warrior, right? So it's. So it's very serious. It's very like dark and trippy. It's very like uh, it's very Moorcock influenced, right? If you read the Elric. oh, cool, yeah, sure. So it's very psychedelic and weird and very very violent. And as you can probably imagine, uh, there's a lot of fighting in it, and it's a lot of barbarians and dark elder gods and weird magics and stuff like that. Uh, but it's do also you do, it, do you do it behind a soundtrack like a no. like a music soundtrack or no, something? No, it's just me. It's just totally it's you. just me. I, I quiet I quiet the apartment down uh, and I sit down and I I do it in one take. And if I if I get 35 minutes into it and I flub a word, I delete it and I start over again because I'm a crazy person. Uh, but no, it's, 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 it's a comic book. You know, it's, a, it's an ongoing comic book that you can listen to while you're commuting or while you're cleaning the house or something like that. And it's this ongoing barbarian thing. Uh, there are 49 episodes. I've, I've been doing it weekly for almost a year now. Um, and there are 49 episodes live right now. There's a new one every Tuesday morning. You can find it on uh, iTunes and Stitcher uh, or Scald S K A L D dot uh, And I also have if you're if you're more of if you're more of the the prose persuasion, uh, I put volumes of the text up on Amazon as eBooks that people can find as well. Oh, good for you. How's that going? Uh, it's okay. Uh, you know, it's I started doing it not as you know. I don't put a lot of energy behind um, promoting, and you know, there's there's a whole it's it's a crazy wild west of an industry right like people who do the ebooks on amazon and uh i don't see it as that that's not the main product you know the main product for me is the the podcast and it's the podcast because it's written everything's written to be read you know it's not i mean it's written to be heard let me say that okay Uh, okay so like it's meant to be heard orally not read on the page uh so i put it up on amazon mostly as a way to help drive people back to the podcast um, hoping that people will kind of stumble across it. If it's recommended to them on Amazon, they'll read it, they'll dig it, and then they'll come to the podcast to find out what's happened since I published the last volume. 
And do you do you go into character voices, or is it really just a narrator telling the tale? Not really. Uh, you know, I will alter my voice a little bit. I don't do you know. I don't. I don't say, oh, well, this person has a British accent or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I get into really dialogue heavy portions, I do modify my voice a little bit. Not with n- modifies not word. I you know I I'll speak a little bit more gruffly or a little smoother. Yeah, you dramatize. Yeah, I dramatize yeah. a little bit, mostly just to help with uh, the listening of it. So it's not sure, just, the storytelling. Absolutely. So it's not man. just so it's not just my voice going back. It doesn't just sound like me being a crazy person, right? No, I hear you. Although me being a crazy person is a big part of the project because it's me. <laughs> hey, yelling I'm a big. Things. Well, but like when um, when Star Trek uh, would do adaptations of their pocket paperbacks, and you'd have James Doohan or or George Takei narrating them and stuff they did they did a little bit because they also had you know in the in Takei's case well actually both they're full-fledged actors but I know that James Doohan was a radio actor before television and stuff and could do various you know he would do dialects and go into an old man voice but no you've got it you, especially if you don't have sound effects or, yeah. or a soundtrack behind you and stuff like that it would be impossible no, to listen to because you know like if you're reading on the page and you know you get into a you know back and forth um conversation between two people most writers don't put he said she said behind every single line and so once you lose that uh and you don't have the way it's written in format on the page to make it clear that a new person is talking you need some kind of signifier so yeah i I do end up using slightly different voices but it's not like full-on wacky accents or anything like that it's very it's it's serious it's it's not a comedy you know it's it's oh i'm with you no 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 i understand and i think that's great have you ever taken it to any spoken word kind of live uh performances or anything no i it's not really um i've thought about it i thought about like maybe doing like live readings or something somewhere uh but i don't know like I, i didn't come at it from a spoken word background right like this is the first thing like this that I've ever done before. Um, I came at it from kind of a comic book background and wanting what it really was, man, was that I had tried for so long to get different comic book projects going. And the problem when you're not a good artist and you want to be a comic book writer is you need to find collaborators. And sure. Um, if you don't have a bunch of money lying around to pay somebody, which I didn't right. and, and still don't, uh, I into my finances, uh, <laughs> Like you have to find somebody willing to work on spec and you share the ownership and you just hope you can stay together and keep it going for long enough. But inevitably what kept happening to me was, you know, people would get a paying gig or they would get a better offer or they would just get tired of it or their day job would get really busy and they wouldn't have time for it. And I kept on having projects blow up in my face and I realized I needed something consistent, something out there coming out all the time that showed my serialized storytelling chops. And I figured, you know, all the time that I had spent talking on my straight shoot podcast, uh, you know, this was probably the best way to go. And it's been going really well and people are digging it. And I, I, I would say, you know, if you're, if people are going to check it out, uh, dive right into the most recent episode. Don't, you know, treat it, treat it like Batman. You don't go back to the very first detective comics. Okay. Right? You know, you dive, you dive in with what's good right now. So get right in there with episode 49 or 50, if it's out or whatever it is. What are you using to listen, not beyond listening to yourself, but what outside uh, influences are you looking at or or listening to to make your own storytelling better in this way? Uh, You know, so uh, Michael Moorcock is a big, big influence um, in terms of the the type of, you know, because that guy. The tone. Yeah, the the tone and, you know, the the themes and kind of the way that that guy would. um, I find it very similar to Kirby, actually. Um, The way that that guy would take kind of very pulpy 
you know, lowbrow sure. concepts and then kind of imbue them with metaphors that are just emblazoned on people's foreheads. Right. I hear you. you know, it's like, it's like the fourth world stuff. Right. There's nothing shy sure. about any of that. Right. Everything is what it is and means what it means. And uh, and so I love that stuff. That's a big part of it. I'm rereading all of um, I'm in the midst of a big Robert E. Howard reread right now, um, which is also really helpful in that um, in kind of the regard of like um, doing this kind of very two-fisted pulpy action adventure stuff man one of the biggest influences though um is <laughs> growing up i went uh i was we went to church every week when i was growing up and i lived in the south and invariably our preachers were these amazing storytellers that would tell just sure. bonkers like whether like more often than not it wasn't something from the bible it was like some weird thing that had happened to them you know before they got called into the ministry or whatever and like when they were younger men and like uh, there, there was one in particular who grew up down in like Mississippi and he had all these crazy ass stories about going coon hunting at night because if you want to <laughs> catch a raccoon, you got to do it at night because that's when they're out and you get a bag and you go out and you find these raccoons. And uh, like, you know, it somehow wound its way back to Jesus, I guess. Uh, I don't really remember the specifics <laughs> of it, uh, but I do remember the way that, that guy told stories. It was phenomenal. And just kind of the way that, you know, I found, and a lot of it's just trial and error and listening to what I've done, but uh, I found that, you know, and this is a thing that preachers and good orators understand is that when you're saying a sentence, you have a lot more options to imbue it with an additional meaning. It's kind of like, sure. um, it's kind of like ancient Greek a little bit, right? And I'll, <laughs> that's a crazy thing to say. And I'll explain why. No, not to me. I'm Greek, so please go on. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, hey, stop it. That's my dog freaking out. Let's talk. No problem. Uh, the, um, the thing with ancient Greek is, uh, it is a completely conjugated and um, declined language, right? Um, which is to say that every noun and verb has an ending, like a, a word ending on it uh, that clarifies its role in the sentence, right? This is very different from English because English is a word order based um, language, right? Uh, you, you know the subject and the direct object uh, and the indirect object of a sense based on where they are in relationship to the verbs and the, the prepositions. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. Greek, in ancient Greek at least, and modern Greek's a little bit different, in ancient Greek, you can put the words in any order you please. <laughs> and, it, and it means the same thing, but it emphasizes different aspects of the sentence. Uh, and so similarly, when you're saying, when you're saying, when you're reading these sentences, where you choose to place your emphasis uh, can have drastically uh, different meanings sure. uh, and implications well, for it, the audience. Right. right. Or give it more, more meaning and weight. Uh, George Carlin talked about that all the time and he would describe his uh, monologues really as songs. Right. And his monologues, and, and, you know, and if you read his monologues, they wouldn't work in the same way, you know? Right. And like, right. and that's something else I've, I've learned too uh, while doing it is how important repetition is. And I knew it going in. And that's one of the, the things, you know, I made, when I first started it, I made a big – I made two big lists, right? I made a list of all the strengths of doing something like this and also all of the the, the drawbacks, right? All the problems and the hurdles I was going to have to overcome. And a big one to me is that you know, I've tried to listen to audiobooks a lot and I have a really hard time. And this is not an audiobook. And here's what's different about it. Audiobooks are just somebody reading something that was meant for you to read. So right. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that me – when I'm listening to an audiobook while I'm driving, my mind wanders like nobody's business. And I end up rewinding constantly because yes. I'll like I'll, you know, I'll see something out the window and think about that for a second. Sure. And I'll come back in and I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so 
one of the ways I've decided to get around that, and it ties into the other thing that we were discussing in terms of how you place emphasis and impart additional meaning beyond just the words that you're saying, is repetition and choosing which words to repeat and specific phrases to repeat. Um, and mm-hmm. it's almost like it almost has kind of a magical quality in that you say these things so often that they these phrases, um, these common phrases and these things that were already kind of loaded with meaning because of how they're used in the story become more meaningful because of the frequency with which people hear it. Um, so it's another, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of trial and error because <laughs> uh, it's, it's, that's really ambitious. It's such man. a, it's, that's really it's cool. such a different thing, you know, and it's a thing that people haven't really done in a really long time. The reason it's called scald is because a scald is basically like a Scandinavian bard, you know? And so very much the, the concept for the podcast was kind of a return to oral storytelling. And if you think about these oral, these bards, they don't get multiple takes, right? They don't get to go back and have a do over if they're doing a, if they're doing a performance in front of their King or their Jarl or whatever. Right. Uh, and so I don't either. I do it in one, I do it in one go, which is, which was a nightmare at first. I've gotten a lot better at it though. <laughs> no, that honestly, that's great. Um, I, Man, I can't remember where I saw. Oh, I think it was Ken Burns' baseball documentary, and they had a, an old, early sound uh, vaudeville capturing a vaudeville act of someone performing Casey at the bat. Oh, neat. and it really is this dramatic reading, and it's all in you know, it's all, like you said, they got to do it all in one it's shot. Have kind of a lost everything. art now. Yeah, exactly, and also. Um, being a radio person and a podcaster and stuff, no, I'm all for ambitious uses of audio. So that's great, man. I, and I think that's um, – you're right. You're, you're kind of – storytelling is the key. And storytelling is always going to be the saving grace of audio. And as you say, audio books do fail because they have to adhere to the text. Yeah, well, just not, and so it is kind meant, of a secondhand – Exactly. They're just not meant for that medium. You know? Right, right. So. So, no, you're right. And, uh, no, that's terrific. And I'll tell you, you mentioned Robert Howard. Um, I've been trying to toy with uh, his uh, boxing stories, the Sailor Costigan stories, because they're great. I mean, they're, unfortunately, because of the time, a little racist at times. uh, A lot of his stuff is a lot of racist. Right. You know, but, I mean, it's, um, in the case of Sailor Costigan, it was, you know, foreign intrigue. And it really was this this guy who was working on uh, merchant... um, Marine ships and would, you know, find himself fighting either, you know, the, the heavyweight of the arrival ship that's in the same port or whoever the local badass was. And he would find himself in some sort of boxing match. And uh, they're great. I mean, I, I love them. And, I, and um, you know, and they're told in first person. So I kind of see a similarity to what you're talking about with Scald and, and what uh, and what Howard was doing with writing the Sailor Costigan stories. And I'm like, yeah, you know, would that work? And I keep trying to think of. Really, again, being a radio person and stuff, you know, kind of using the sound effects and the tricks that I have, you know, in terms of the the equipment and the uh, different radio libraries that I have at my disposal to really make something. And and to be honest, really, there's enough sound effects and things online that you could even like pretty much with YouTube and that find a whole bunch of sounds and kind of throw something together. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's the right time to be doing it, I think. Um, You know, I agree with you. When I I first started, you know, one of the things I was looking at, I was like, look, Serial is massively popular, right? right? Comic books, you know, if not comic books themselves, at least the comic book properties, you know, comic book movies. And, you know, the idea of, you know, the thing that's making these comic book movies so popular now is that they all, they're all connected and they're all serialized. Right. And, you know, like th- these ongoing stories, this, these are massively, massively popular. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely the right time to do it. It's, you know, um, there's a thirst for good 
smart narrative based podcasts right now. Agreed. I'm, I'm, Agreed. I'm doing my best to quench it, John. Well, hey man, no, seriously, uh, I'm I'm curious in its progression. I mean, do you uh, like? Are you gathering an audience? Are you? Of course. You know, how's that going? Yeah, it grows every month. You know, uh, we haven't had a month where uh, where the audience hasn't continued to grow. Uh, you know, and it's Terrific. tough because there's not really anything like it out there. Right. How do you promote it? So, I'm glad that you're, you know, I'm happy to help you promote it. My well, way, thanks, man. Yeah, that's what we're doing right now. That's why, that's why I asked for a plug. <laughs> no, I'm glad. No, I'm seriously no, very fast. It's tough. I mean, and that's why I did the Amazon thing too, right? Just trying to find my audience a little bit uh, better uh, because there's such a glut of podcasts out there that it's possible to stumble across things. It's all based on word of mouth. And, you know, with straight shoot, I was really fortunate uh, when I started out, I was coming off of a, my, I was coming off of working at WWE games uh, and, uh-huh. and I was the interactive marketing manager there. So I was very involved with social media and I already had a wrestling based presence. So it was a really good platform. Also, WWE is great about utilizing social media, especially Twitter. Uh, so if you're, good if you're a good talker and have good content to promote it's easy to find that audience with skull it's a little bit tougher because uh a lot of i think a lot of the audience who i have found didn't really know that they were the audience for this until they checked it out Uh, can you even have you talked to an artist friend to give you like a logo and you know does he does he exist in a in a physical form in terms of a drawing or something um the my my friend Tommy Smith actually did the art and logo uh, for it that is, that is now up there uh, and a, a guy and so I wanted to have a different aesthetic um, for the prose volumes because I knew it was going to be going towards a different audience you know when I talked to Tommy about the album art for Scald Podcast I told him I wanted mm-hmm. to look I wanted to look like the most bitchin van painting he could possibly <laughs> right I want I want evil wizards I want scantily clad women I want a big muscly dude I want monsters and he put them all in there and it's purple and crazy looking and amazing cool. uh but now the the book is a little bit drier looking because I, I wanted to kind of go for a little bit more high-minded fantasy novel audience right uh and so it's a it's a it's a little bit more of a stark look for the um for the prose not for the, the prose book. versions okay okay interesting very cool man no i i uh i i will you know when when you got something that you want to, to let people know about you're welcome to come back Thanks, because man. i appreciate it. i uh, no like i said I, I agree with you i i do think that the storytelling aspect of podcasting is still reasonably untapped it's tough to find good material one that i like that does a great job with old hollywood stories uh is called you must remember this oh, dude the manson one did you listen to that? I didn't hear that one. No, no dude. They did like a they did like a twelve part series on Charles Manson. On that. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, a lot of a lot of their themes. Oh my god, are, it is you know, phenomenal. It is so crazy. And I just, I had no idea uh, how many aspects of pop culture that guy touched and was adjacent to. Not like after his death. No, or not like after his. Oh no, no, death. I know what you mean. Like, no, while it was happening. Yeah, yeah. it was crazy. It's crazy, crazy well, stuff. Yeah. That's a great podcast. That's cool. No, I, yeah, I love it too. And um, right now she's doing uh, the Hollywood Blacklist. Oh, but uh, I discovered her when she was doing MGM stories. Cool. And it was just about the rise and fall of MGM as a film studio back, you know, in the golden age and stuff. And it's – no, she's great. She's a very good narrator and a, a very uh, effective storyteller and uses a little bit of music. uses a little bit of uh, other actors to uh, represent people and stuff. But uh, no, I, I find that ambitious. And yeah, I'm like, ooh, that's kind of cool. Because I always say, too, uh, as a person that works in radio, 
I get to do a little bit of acting on commercials, but let's be honest, they're damn commercials. <laughs> so they're not that much fun. And, you know, or you try and make them creative and it's like, ah, can we sell the product a little bit more? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, all right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm like, oh, God, you know, I was born in the wrong decade. I should have been born during, like, the golden age of radio. I would have had a blast. I mean, and this is yeah. one of the cool things about podcasts right now is that you have, yep. I mean, there's such anyone can do it. Anybody can do it. It's a low barrier to entry and you have complete creative yep. freedom. So if, yep. if, you know, I get a wild hair one week and I just, all I want to do is just a massive 35 minute fight scene. Uh, guess what? That's exactly what I do. with scald. <laughs> <laughs> it's just him bonking people overhead with bricks for 30 minutes or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> that's excellent, man. Well, that's great. Good luck with scald. Thanks, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, man, uh, street fighter, GI Joe go off to a good start. And, uh, as we're, you know, again, as this comes out, it, it did, it came out Wednesday. I'm putting this out at the end of the week. Um, so, uh, make, you know, grab it. I'm sure it's on your stands. If not, make sure your store grabs it. And, uh, no, that's great. Pre-order number two, be a friend to the retailer. Tell them you are going to be buying the rest of the series so they can adjust their orders properly. Absolutely. No, you know the drill. That's exactly right. (laughs) And, uh, no, you're welcome back to, uh, I'd like to hear uh, progression on Scald and, uh, the other things that you're working on. It was a pleasure, sir. Hopefully I'll have some, uh, I got, I got some, got some things cooking, nothing ready to announce just yet, but when I do, you will be among the first to know. Sounds good, man. That's Aubrey Sitterson. I hope you check out Scald and uh, also his work on uh, G.I. Joe and Street Fighter, uh, Issue 1. And uh, go to his website, AubreySitterson.com, and you can get links to Scald and Straight Shoot, his comic book work, and a whole lot more. Aubrey Sitterson, and I look forward to our next conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on Word Balloon. Uh, It was uh, brought to you by you, the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you for your support and uh, continued uh, appreciation for said support. If you go to wordballoon.com, there's all the details on if you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon. It's not necessary, but if you want to help support the show, that's the way to do it. Thank you very much for your support. Until next time, uh, Word Balloon, if you want to talk to me uh, via email, you can email me at john at wordballoon.com. You can follow me at Twitter under at John Word Balloon or on Facebook for either the Word Balloon Network or under my name, John Suntress. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2016.